detective? Thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Now Care More, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. How it works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy podcast, the crossroads where science fiction, fantasy, and horror meet. I'm your host, Nathan Bartleball. I am joined, as always, with my co-host, Bill Van Vagel. Bill, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. And as we were discussing off-air, it seems like it's been forever since we've done one of these. And you know what? It's been a few weeks, but, you know, we've been busy. We've been watching movies. We've been trying to get our end-of-the-year list going. We've recorded some of the episodes for other portions of this community of Phantom Galaxy. So we have been busy, but an actual kind of review, sit down, get to know what we've been watching. It's been a little bit. So I look forward to this. I think the audience is going to like it. And I think we're going to bring some new movies and perspectives into people's listening ears. Yeah, yeah, definitely for sure. And I, you're right. We It's been a little bit since we've done one of these sorts of episodes where we review things. And I'm going to be do, releasing these more regularly. We are, I've got it slated with a schedule. And I want to start having uh, sort of, for me personally, uh, movies that I plan to cover on the show. We also have Phantom Video where I'll be trying to more regularly review uh, physical media releases in that same format so that we're getting reviews out relatively regularly. Uh, and we don't cover just new movies when we do the review episode, but in this format, excuse me, Bill and I going back and forth, reviewing some of the new movies we've seen, or in this case, just some of the movies we've seen, you know, for, for us, some of them may be new, even though they released 30 years ago. So I don't know if we have any of those tonight, but. And I, I do have one request for Phantom video at some point. I'd love you to review the 4k of planes, trains, and automobiles. Yes, well, that is on my list, Bill. That's uh, yeah, I was just talking about that with Trey the other day. That is one of my all-time favorite movies, and we didn't get around to watching it this Thanksgiving. I didn't get the 4K yet. I, but we did watch the movie Dutch, so oh, <laughs> with uh, Ed O'Neill, which is a uh, a John Hughes and it's fun in its own way. Um, is no, it is no planes, trains, and automobiles, however. Um, but anyway, yeah, let's go ahead. We'll get started. The one note I wanted to make. I think you, like me, Bill, a lot of the movies you've probably been in taking have been in a sort of feverish rush to get to your end-of-the-year lists. And uh, typically, we get to our end-of-the-year list when we get to them. But we're going to make a real concentrated effort this year to get the horror, the best horror movies of 2022, which we've done one every year since we brought Phantom Galaxy back. Uh, we're going to try to get that up before the end of the year, record it before the end of the year, and get it uh, released before the end of the year. And that'll be the best horror. Now, I think our best movies, the more general list, uh, will probably be released sometime in early January. I'm going to give a few more weeks for that because I know some of the big 
um, movie releases that we want to see are get are, are sort of staggered to be released right around Christmas. Some of them aren't even fully out until the new year uh, be, due to sort of limited releases and things. So I think in order to be able to get a clear picture of all of those films, which is a wider swath of movies, I think it's safe to say we can get in most of the horror films, but we'll probably do our best of the best of the year will release in January. No later, but in January, probably early to mid-January. Yeah, and uh, both lists are always fun, an assortment of guests, an assortment of point of views. And uh, listeners, you're going to be up to get some fun in those. But right now, we're kind of just going by what we've seen. So most of them, are, as Nathan has said, are going to be 2022s just because we have been. But, you know, sometimes we do like to stray and actually just watch a movie for fun. And you're going to get <laughs> right for fun. Imagine that. <laughs> um, but anyway, Bill, do you want to start with your first movie of the evening? Sure. My first movie, surprise, surprise, is a 2022 film. And it's one that I knew very little going in. I had heard a little bit of buzz probably a little while back on it. I had it on a list on my in my notepad somewhere to see and to check out. And I finally just got around. I was sitting after finishing marking some papers, going to sit on the couch and watch. And that's 2022's one hour and 36 minute film, Nocebo. Now it's, it's down as a thriller. You could call it a horror. I've seen horrors that are less, that are more or less in the same vein. Call it what you will. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The IMDb description is a fashion designer is suffering from a mysterious illness that puzzles her doctors and frustrates her husband until he arrives, sorry, until help arrives in the form of a Filipino carer who uses traditional folk healing to reveal a horrifying truth. The director is Lorcan Finnegan, who did a movie who that I quite enjoyed not too long ago, well, a couple of years back, the kind of straddled different genres, and that's Vivarium. Oh, yeah, yeah, I liked Vivarium. Yeah, it's a it's a very divisive film. Some people really got into it, and some people didn't care for it. I was in the camp of I liked it. Now it has actress that many people might know in the genre and outside of the genre, Eva Green, who was in movies such as Casino Royale. She was in Dumbo. Nathan, I'm sure you can fill in other movies that she's been in. Uh, it also has Mark Strong, another actor that you might not know by name, but you've definitely seen him. He was in movies such as 1917, uh, Kingsman, The Secret Service, and The Imitation Game. And a relatively new actress in the genre, Shai Fonassier, who plays the Filipino caregiver. So what's going on in this film? So it starts with a female fashion designer, and she's displaying some of her fashions to a customer in her store, and she gets sprayed in her own studio by a random dog comes in, shakes its fur sprays what it has on it and just kind of goes away. And you're kind of wondering, okay, is that a big deal? Well, it obviously is a big deal because it turns out there are some ticks and some germs on the dog that got into Eva green, the fashion designer, and it caused a complication of medical issues. And so her health starts to decline, and she takes on a nurse or a nanny, caregiver, call her what you will, that she doesn't remember hiring, played by Chai Foncier. 
and she's a Filipino uh, caregiver. She doesn't remember hiring her, but she just shows up at the door one day and Eva Green just chalks it up to she's sick and she's been trying to work and she just forgets. So she invites her in and she makes her presence known right away. So the mystery starts right away. Who is she? Why doesn't Green remember hiring her? And is she who she says she is? Because, you know, she just kind of shows up with her bag. And not only does she show up to work, she assumes that there's a place for her to live there. So Green is finding a back room for her to stay in. And, of course, Financier was, is, okay, sure, I'll stay here. It doesn't make a difference. Now, there's also something else. There's a scene where Eva Green sure likes to use the Lord's name in vain. So if you want to follow the Ten Commandments, there's a scene that's going to make you squirm a little. And, <laughs> and But the thing is, being from the Philippines and being from the old country, Fonassier has some odd healing methods. For example, very early on, Green collapses, and we're not sure why. And her method is tickling her and makes her feel better. And the tickling actually gets her back up and moving which isn't obviously a traditional medical form of healing, but it works in this condition. So she's got all kinds of ancient remedies and potions per se, but why are they working? What makes her have the powers that she does? It's a bit of a slow build at the beginning, but it's nice and spooky, okay? And you get a lot of flashbacks, from the old country or for her prior life or her prior actions of Fonassier that kind of lay the, the seeds of what's going to happen. So the one, one of the criticisms of the film is some of the cards are laid out early. And if you're pretty perceptive, you're going to pick them up and you can probably foreshadow the next hour or so of the film. Even saying that though, it's a nice ride. So, you know, her methods, her motivations, who she is, we get elements of pictures of a daughter that she had. And there's a, a moment where at the beginning, she's in the, uh, Green is in the hallway and she goes downstairs and sees a fireplace and there's mystery footprints. And we're not quite sure what that alludes to, but you start connecting the dots the viewer is intrigued because they don't know why these odd uh, methods are being used, but they do seem to work. Okay. And green seemingly forgets where she has done things or where she has placed things. So her health is going down or is it her mental state? So you kind of get inside her head a little bit. It's a well-told story. It's creepy. It's mysterious. It's well-crafted. The husband is played by Mark Strong, and he does a pretty darn good performance because he's acting, obviously, in Green's best interest and isn't necessarily buying in to all what he perceives as this old country mumbo-jumbo snake salesman kind of mentality towards it. He wants hard medicine. He wants the antibiotics or whatever the doctor prescribes and doesn't necessarily believe in massage and tickling and that sort of thing. Uh, so he finds, for example that Green's medicine bottles have been hidden under the nanny's bed. And it gets his ears up right away. And so Mac Strong, Mark Strong says, okay, I've had enough of this. They fire her. She's out on the street. And she finds a way to come on back. 
Okay. There's a really cool scene involving a giant tick. And so there is a little. How giant? uh, It's in a dream sequence. Oh, good, good. (laughs) And let's just say that if you're laying in bed and you have ever had issues or nightmares of things popping on your chest, you know, kind of applying that pressure on your chest, uh, this scene might not be for you. Let's just put it that way. And Fauna Claire has a special relationship with birds. Okay. I'm just going to leave it at that. And it gets, it gets elements that I really like. And I know you do as well, Nathan, of freakiness and trippiness and out there. There is a little bit of that too. Okay. In the end, I'm not going to tell you much more other than we learn more about the backstory and what leads to things happening. I know that sounds like a cop out. You're not giving me a lot there. I really shouldn't. No, I, I've, I'm sold. I think, uh, and I, the interesting thing about the way you set the movie up, I actually hadn't heard of the movie. I saw it skimming through Amazon just, uh, today, I believe, or yesterday. And I saw it as one of the movies that you can rent, uh, I think you had mentioned it says it's a maybe a Shutter film. Yep, on Shutter right now. It is, however, available to rent on Amazon. And I was sitting there thinking, well, I've never heard of this movie, and but at the same time, and then the the, the nocebo, which I instantly think of placebo. You know, assuming a play on that. And the thing is, it is there is a, a scientific relation to the word nocebo. And I saw that Eva Green was in the film as well, and I thought, well, okay, that's instantly kind of. I probably need to get to this one before the end of the year. And then when you were kind of saying, Hey, here are the movies I want to review tonight, Nathan. And I saw this, I was very much interested in this one and everything you've described about it. What I find so sort of like tantalizing about the way you've described it is from any perspective at any given time, it sounds like a different genre. Like at one point you were describing something that sounds very much horrific, you know, a horror style movie, Uh, definitely a thriller at points, but then there's also, there feels like there's a, there's some sci-fi or potential sci-fi or the tone of science fiction going on, even if there's nothing purely science fictional in this, the, the rational versus the scientific, you know, uh, the, the idea of the sort of, uh, I don't know that what you described is necessarily folk medicine, but you know, it has that sort of vibe to it, right. Versus rigor. And these are the sort of uh, standardized ways that we deal with things. And then at the same time, there feels very much like there's a drama story unfolding in the middle of that with her and the housekeeper and uh, things like that. Yeah, because there are elements, you're right, of uh, Moorhead and Benson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it involved in this in some, not necessarily time travel, because that is not what it is. But there are flashbacks elements, a, a parallel uh, uh, storylines. So it isn't it. And everybody who listens to me knows I tend to be a bit of a tougher marker, a tougher, uh, harsher uh, in terms of I don't give the stars away. I give this a solid 7.5. And anybody who hasn't watched this before they create their end of the year lists, I highly recommend you watch it. I'm not saying it's going to make your top 10, but it may very well be in that if you're filling out your 7, 8, 9, 10s, I can see it easily sneaking into some people's. And and Eva Green is someone who's almost always worth worth watching. Uh, I find I think um, has she made a couple of movies that aren't the greatest? Yeah, sure. But I think uh, she's someone who she she's a great actress. I've been uh, paying attention to her since way back in maybe The Dreamers in two thousand three. I think. Uh, but yeah, um, I'm very much looking forward to seeing that. 
Yeah, and the other, I mean, the last thing I'll say about it is it's essentially a three-person play. Uh, at one point, there's a friend of Eva's that's involved, and there's a daughter, and that's it. So you don't have these elaborate storylines of multiple friends and people popping by, and no, it's basically a three-person drama that works out in fantastic elements. Very cool. Very cool. Alrighty, so Mr. Bartlebaugh, what do you have for the audience? Well, you uh, you mentioned a moment ago uh, Benson and Moorhead as you were discussing this film, and I'm going to go ahead and review ben, <laughs> their new film uh, that that um, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead directed. It's something in the dirt. I've probably you've probably heard me if you're listening to the podcast, you probably heard me mention this movie maybe a handful of times because I actually did see it back in January of this year, at the very beginning of the year, at the Sundance Film Festival. And uh, uh, so, and I actually realize now, Bill, I must have seen about 12 movies, and about 10 of those, or about not 10, about six of those movies will probably be on my best of the year lists, on one of the two lists. So I plan... Well, see, I, I was going to say, I'm in an advantage, because you can't remember nine months ago. <laughs> yeah, I remember pretty well. This one I remember pretty well. But um, you have you seen this one yet, Bill? I have not, but it is definitely on my list. Okay. I just have to determine after listening to your review, is it on the horror end or is it a non-horror top 10 kind of movie? I would say, okay, so I'll give you the review and you can sort of decide. Uh, the one thing I will say about this going in is this goes back, the last film that these guys did together was Synchronic, and I've been watching their Star Rise for a long time. And one of the very first episodes I did of the podcast proper when it was Pop Culture Ninja was actually got a chance to interview these guys when I did Resolution. Uh, talked to them over the movie Spring. We did an episode with um, Ryan Stockstead where we reviewed the movie Spring, which was their their second sort of feature that was I thought was a great movie. And uh, The Endless was the movie they did after that, which sort of brought them back full circle with their storyline that they began in Resolution. And then they did Synchronic. And Synchronic was, a, I think, a bigger budget film. It had it had a bigger cast of actors in it. I mean, before this, it's basically, uh, except for Spring, it's Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead playing the characters in the film, right? And, uh, and they have a great rapport, so it, it works out. But they also did Synchronic, which had Anthony Mackie and Jamie Dornan in it, and a much bigger cast, and a really sort of out there sci-fi movie. That one did play with time travel. And what was interesting is to see, as their star is rising, and we see them working on things like um, uh, lots of different shows on Netflix, and uh, even on Disney+, Plus. they just directed episodes of Moon Knight, which is the big Marvel superhero show. So, they're, you know, they, they've got plenty of exposure, and then what they do during COVID is they go back like many filmmakers did. Uh, ben Wheatley comes to mind when he did in, um, in the earth, they go back and they make a film within the parameters of COVID where it's really just them. These two guys, again, on screen for almost the entire film, you have small, uh, moments where people sort of come in and out and sort of, uh, permeate this little bubble they form but it's really these two guys on screen and what's really interesting is when you see them they they they've played buddies in the past in uh look at the endless they're actually playing brothers in that film right and they have a rapport that feels very much like two guys that know each other in this one they're two guys who meet at the start of the film and then i this has the feel of almost like a found footage but it's done under the guise that these two people these two sort of outcast people that find their way to this low rent apartment in Laurel Canyon and sort of, sort of discover each other when they're both on the down and outs, they find 
that there is some sort of potentially supernatural or paranormal activity happening inside of this apartment. But instead of it going in the direction of, say, a pure horror story where we see them discover that there's an entity or some kind of force and it becomes jump scares and and tension and, you know, a question of what sort of creature uh, is inside of the house, it doesn't quite go that way. It develops more along the lines of like an X-Files episode. And in fact, Benson and Moorhead had mentioned that X-Files was sort of what they were thinking of, like that conspiratorial feel that the entire universe and its fabric may be against you in some way, that there might be something hidden in the everyday right in front of you and you want to be able to capture it. And that's what these guys are seeing is phenomena that they don't understand and they conspire together to try to capture it on film but they don't entirely trust each other. And I think that is central to what happens. So what we see in this apartment are things that we can't explain and these guys can't explain. But we also, what's fascinating is that what we see, we assume has been assembled together. And so the camera itself is a potentially unreliable narrator. That's the one thing we never yet questioned about, right? When you see a found footage film, I think uh, Bobcat Goldwaite said this when he was introducing Willow Creek at the film festival. I saw that he said, you know, no one asked the question, who's the guy that puts all this stuff together? What kind of weirdo sifts through the, you know, the footage of dead people and puts it puts together a movie and how can you trust it? And that's not exactly what's happening here, but I think these guys have taken that concept of understand that the, what you're seeing is being presented through a certain person's mental state and mental state of mind. So if we want to, if we want to fake a video of an alien autopsy, that's not in this film, but you know, it's an example of things that would pop up on the X-Files. Then we, there's a certain amount of things we need to do, but what happens when we begin to believe our own fabricated realities? And I think that was a big question that's been on my mind during not just COVID, but the last couple of years and seeing the way people process information. And I feel we're in a place where people are sort of accepting things more because it feels to them like it should be true than that there's any proof that it is true. So let me give you a little backup to the story because I know I'm talking more in sort of uh, thematic terms, but this is a movie that's best for you to uh, experience because when you first start watching it, you're going to notice that it is a very low budget. It is made to feel that way it's stripped bare to the bones here and at first watch we, it might take a couple minutes to get into it because these two characters uh they are they're a little standoffish not just towards world at large but to each other and they themselves aren't uh you know really uh what we would consider presentable uh you know affable guys uh Aaron Moorhead he plays John and he he looks kind of twitchy and just uh always a little bit on edge. And when he meets Levi, who's Justin Benson's character, uh, he's working at a bar nearby, but there's no family or friends near him. He's ostracized. We don't know why, but we find out as the film progresses. And uh, John, on the other hand, he's an evangelical Christian, but he's also gay at the same time. It's, I don't know if he's a mathematician, but he sort of uh, fancies himself a mathematician. So he's talking always about things in the way the universe is sort of settled in terms of mathematical equations and mathematical ideas. Both of these guys meet in the courtyard near outside the uh, apartment. They find out that they've moved in there, um, but they've gone. Levi has just moved in to an apartment that John has said, hey, that's been a vacant. Nobody's been in it. I don't can't remember anyone ever being in it. And uh, they 
begin to realize that there are things going on in this apartment that would definitely qualify as out of the ordinary. There is this moment where there's this uh, like a, this object, this quartz uh, s- structure, and it actually levitates. And then we see there's this, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it, almost like a light field, the prisms of light that sort of emanate from this thing. And these are all things that sort of remind you of something you might see in a Close Encounters of the Third Kind or a film like that. There's nothing that absolutely says, oh, this is aliens. There's nothing that absolutely says this is ghosts. Uh, They don't really know. And I think that's what makes the movie so interesting is when this stuff starts happening, not unlike when synchronic, when they suddenly discover this time distortion, the difference here is they don't know what it is and they're relying upon their own sort of human perspective and their own prejudices and beliefs to interpret it. And that's where this gets interesting because they start to go down this rabbit hole of conspiracy theories. And some of the most interesting stuff is just let hearing these guys talk about what they think might be going on. And they dig deep. I mean, they go into MK ultra. They talk about Aldous Huxley. They're talking about, they're going through Morse code. Uh, and, you know, they get into the, the mathematical ideas of Pythagoras and how that, uh, dovetails with uh the the city planning went on los angeles and how los angeles is actually set up and how maybe there's something more arcane going in in the very structure of the entire city and they spiral out and there's just the two of them and because they're isolated they create this world between the two of them that uh becomes very sort of both suffocating and intoxicating as a viewer and then you start to realize that they make a point of well how did you how did you present it that way you, this is not the way that it actually was. And we begin to believe that maybe even the phenomena we've seen may have been faked by one or both of them. And yet something is still going on in that apartment and it's getting more dangerous and the conspiracies are starting to pile up and they can't find anything that completely fits or makes sense. We start to distrust one or the other of them at any given moment. And the movie just gets weirder and weirder, but you're fully engrossed in it. And I will say this one thing. Don't go into some expecting a very nice, clean twist and wrap up. That's not what this is. This is a sort of uh, <laughs> like a uh, deviation right down into the very heart of what powers conspiracies and what powers uh, strange sort of rabbit trails where you start to question your very reality. I think it's one of the best movies I've seen this year, and I would put it in the horror genre, uh, but I would also put it in the science fiction genre because I think that uh, the ideas it's working with at any given moment, they can be seen through different lenses. And I think that's what's so fascinating is we realize that we can be given a certain set of quote-unquote facts and our own minds may take them and tear them apart where they're not facts anymore, they're mythology, or we might take mythology and braid it into facts. And I've never seen a movie uh, and quite done in this way that would tackle an idea that to that level, where we really get to see, hey, the random person spouting what appears to be madness on the internet or anywhere else uh, has come to it through their own experiences. But what does that look like? And this is about the closest I think I've seen to capturing that feel. So if you're a fan of the X-Files, if you're a fan of conspiracy theories, if you're someone who just thinks the whole world's gone crazy and you want to get a closer peek at that, uh, or if you just want to see a really well-done, directed movie on a very low budget, this is independent filmmaking and I think some of its best, I recommend this movie. 
Yeah, uh, listening to that, I'll be honest with you, Nathan. I still don't know if it's horror or not. <laughs> but that's regardless. Well, let me let me do one quick thing to sort of clarify. So this is not uh, horror where you're going to watch the dead bodies pile up. This is not horror in the sense of a creature feature. This is like David Lynch horror where you descend into madness and the guardrails come off and danger and 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 shadowy unknowing things this is this is different than synchronic i would say synchronic was fully in the sci-fi genre yeah, but there agree. there is there's psychological horror here that's what this is this is psychological on the i don't there's things i don't want to give away but uh it's it's lovecraftian almost so if you consider endless horror i think you can consider this film horror well that's the thing i was going yeah. back to you know it sounded it had elements like the endless and I always put that in the horror camp, but I'm not going to have a strong argument against yeah. if somebody says it's a sci-fi fantasy. That's it, what this is. These guys yeah. are making original films, yep. and they enjoy both of these genres, and they bring both of these genres to everything I've seen that they've done. The reason I kind of push this a little bit to the horror side is because you mentioned there are some supernatural elements. Or or is there like you yeah, kind no, of there is. That. But sometimes what becomes more yeah the, the 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 suspense and the and the kind of creepiness come from both the things happening in the apartment, but also the question of these two guys. You're never sure how stable they are and what like you know what movie this really feels like, Bill Bug with oh uh, Bug of, oh yeah. okay yeah. so it goes that way. It does it maybe doesn't go quite the same way the Bug does, but that feeling where at some point you realize that the world existing inside that apartment building is a hundred percent dangerous because those two people no longer have normal guardrails, and 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 there's an uneasiness. Yes, so that's why I think the horror comes in. It's almost more in the human component than in the 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 quote unquote supernatural component. Is where they get to expound on these crazy conspiracy ideas that do sound a lot like science fiction, and then an average episode of the X Files. But um, I, I love when I can't completely determine what a movie is. You know, yeah. if it's a good movie, it doesn't matter to me. And this is a very good movie. It's high on my list. Uh, right now, it's an 8.5. This is still going off of the one viewing I had back in January. This was due another viewing before the end of my year list. But uh, it's a really, really good movie. Yeah. You don't have to sell me on Moorhead and Benson. I, I love them uh, as filmmakers. And that's before I ever knew you or your past relationship with them. I, I love that a little bit tri trippy, uh, a little bit makes you think kind of a gender, not gender bender, but genre bender. Yeah. You know, it's one of those and like the endless synchronic, uh, I forget, you know, you can list off uh, uh, resolution, resolution. Again, there's elements of different things. They always have interesting, weird characters. Although this one sounds almost like a two-man play because of the COVID play. Oh, but these guys are plenty interesting. These they got two weird characters, and what I love is they are playing these characters, and they're proving that they can kind of keep their camaraderie and play two guys that are actually opposing each other a little bit. That's very interesting, and that's what's 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 neat is they don't follow the rules you'd expect because they've created in their heads. Uh, the way that the world works to them. And it's fascinating to watch this movie sort of get inside their head a bit and you start to feel trapped <laughs> in that. So putting people in uncomfortable situations with what you don't know is going to be happening. There's a form of mystery. There's a bit of horror. There's a bit of sci-fi. There's a bit of drama and adventure. Yeah, I'm all in. I'm definitely going to watch this and I want to make sure it's in before I make any lists of any genre. 
So thank you for that, Nathan. That was a brilliant. It's been on my thing for a while, my list to watch, and it gives me an excuse to watch. And I don't mind putting the time in if the movie is well worth it. So thanks for that. Now, I love that you mentioned Bug uh, with Ashley Judd, and because it was directed by Mr. William Friedkin. Yep. Yeah. My next movie is directed by Mr. William Friedkin. Oh, new and or old? It's very old. Oh, okay, I, okay, very okay. Cool. Very, very is relative. Comparatively on, old. Was it before yeah. you were born? No. Was it before no. I was born? No. <laughs> Maybe. No, no, it, it shouldn't be. And we mentioned that, you know, most of our movies that we've been watching the last little while are 222s or 221s and fall into the 222 category because we're doing lists and we want to, we're, we're by nature, Nathan and I are completists. But every once in a while, as I said, you sit down and you just want to let your brain walk away and you just want to see, you know, something that looks interesting. So the other night I was completed my work for the night and I just literally went onto YouTube and my exact search was 1970s crime thriller. And I just wanted to see what came up. And I came across one I had never seen before, seemed interesting. And I thought, okay, let's give this one a shot. And that's 1978's The Brinks Job. A year before I was born. A year, are you, okay, <laughs> a year before you were born, okay. So this director, William Friedkin, who you obviously will know from The Exorcist, The French Connection, and I also had Bug, a, a very prolific He did Sorcerer director. too, right, Friedkin? Uh, yeah, he, he yeah. did lots. And the movie. thing is with Friedkin is he has, he did a lot of, very well successfully done films but he also did some that were more niche films he wasn't afraid just to do whatever story came his way <laughs> like jade <laughs> yeah i mean there's a lot there that if you're a cinephile you've seen it's like when you watch fulci the good the bad the ugly versions of his films same kind of thing with Freak. now the the cast is what got me there but before i get into that i'll tell you what the movie's about Again, according to IMDb, a fictional retelling of the infamous Boston Brinks Company robbery on the 17th of January, 1950 of $2.7 million and cost the American taxpayers $29 million to apprehend the culprits with only $58,000 of it recovered. So this is 1950 and they were able to get $2.7 million out of the Brinks Depot. It with a very small percentage of it returning back. So who is in these uh, starring roles? This is very much an ensemble cast, but there is one kind of lead dog in this. And the lead dog is Mr. Peter Falk. Nice. I love Peter, Peter Falk. Falk. I love Peter Falk. I, I mean, I can watch Columbo night, day, tired, no matter what condition I'm in. I, I can watch. Him. Oh, I just have one more question, sir. Just one more question. <laughs> but, but I mean, other, pe other people might know him from The Princess Bride or Anzio. And he's been in a Man. lot of TV. He's in the, um, the Wim Wenders movie, The Wings of Desire. He plays the Earthbound Angel. The One of the Earthbound Angels is already there. And he may or may not be playing Peter Falk, who just happens to have been an angel at one point. Yeah, Peter Falk, you know, towards the end of his career. I mean, what did he die? Maybe five, six, ten years ago, whatever it is. You know, he tended to do roles where he was grandpa or he was kind of like the, yeah, the old yeah. man in, in the family or, you know, crazy uncle, whatever. But you forget how strong an actor he was in his prime. 
and he oh, could sure. yeah. he could definitely control a movie. The other big name in it, second in line, is Mr. Peter Boyle. Oh, Peter, great actor. Peter Boyle of Taxi Driver, Young Frankenstein, and one that I think we might uh, review at some point on this, The Dream Team. Always makes me laugh anytime I see The Dream Team. <laughs> yeah, he spent, I mean, not to, to, you know, he spent years on television and everybody oh, loves Raymond, you know. Everybody um, loves Raymond and, and various things. If you look at his resume, you'd be surprised how much he's been in, uh, in his career, early in his career. And then as yeah. he uh, became bigger and bigger, and he passed he always in 2011. Yeah. yeah, he passed a, a good while ago. Uh, Alan Garfield, who I always think of from Beverly Hills Cop 2. Uh, oh, but yeah, he was in the, yeah. the the conversation and the very strong film that again another one we could review the Ninth Gate. Uh, we have is Mr. that the Polanski Bo- film? Yeah, I think From that the, is yeah the with Polanski um uh, with Johnny Depp. The, the sci-fi, yeah. Uh, and Mr. Warren Oates, who I always think of from Race with the Devil. Yeah, uh, yeah. But but he's also in the Wild Bunch and he's got a whole whack of films he's been in. Gina Rowlands who in more recent times was in The Notebook and oh, The yeah. Skeleton Key, but she acted for a long time. And I was kind of going through the list of names. Mr. Paul Servino, uh, Goodfellas, Nixon, and I always think of as Law and Order. Yeah, He was the, the very first one with Chris Noth. And as a, again, I was going through, I thought it was just about done. Then I, I come across one, Earl Heinemann, who was Wilson in Home Improvement. You only saw half his Just face. Just the guy's the top episode. of his head over yeah, the you fence. Yeah, you only saw the okay. top <laughs> half of his head. So he's in it. He plays an FBI agent. So we've talked a lot about it. What else is it? Uh, the movie about? Well, first I'll say it's a Dino De Laurentiis film. So you know whenever you have a De Laurentiis film, there's a little bit of a budget in it, and it's going to be a bit of a grandiose thing. So Peter Falk is a thief, and he gets out of jail and is working at a diner. But he's looking for another score. He has the itch to get back into the game, but he has to lay low for a little bit just so the authorities know that he's on the up and up. And at the same time, he's assembling his crew. Okay. So their first score was at a uh, candy factory and it became a bit of a shambles. At the end of the day, they took this big safe out. And once they got into it, it was for $13. And even in 1950, $13 wasn't in a heck of a lot of money. So Paul Sorbino, who he had recruited, was like, okay, guys, I'm out. You can have my share. Just let me out of this place. All, the, all of his crew were quirky, quirky characters. But you know this is leading to something bigger, okay? And Falk is essentially playing a Columbo-type character, except he's on the other side of the law. But you can easily see him, you know, a lot of his roles, he's kind of similar. So... Him and Garfield, kind of his right-hand man, were trying to set up and case a joint for a different potential robbery when they walk by the Brinks Depot. And they see the holes in their structure, how you can get in and get out. And they and it kind of gets the, the wheel rolling, and he kind of figure out, can I actually get in this place? Well, Fall cases the joint, and for just his own pleasure, gets in easily. And so he thought, and he got back out. He didn't steal anything. He just wanted to see if he could get in and out. He did. He sets up the job and he gets his crew together. He sells them on it. And kind of the planning stages are off. It walks the line of suspense and comedy. Not always totally successful. Sometimes it's more 
comedic than it is dramatic. And sometimes it's way more dramatic than it is comedic. I, I don't know that the balance was quite there. And that's my main negativity towards it. Now they bring in Peter Boyle as a fence. He, and most, he did one job and he only got 23 cents on the dollar for money that he brought in. And Peter Boyle says he will, if they pull this off, they will get, he will give him 80 cents on the dollar. <laughs> and so Falk is like, heck yeah, let's go, let's get it on this guy. And on January 17th, 1950, it goes down. Now this is obviously based on the actual robbery. I mean, I wouldn't take it note for note, cut for cut that, you know, the facts are exactly the same. I'm going to say it's probably a, a loose representation of what happened. You know, it had a little bit of a feel of escape from Alcatraz when the heist begins. You know, you, you somebody is watching it going on and you don't know if this cast of characters is going to make it out or how many of them are going to get out of it. I'm not going to say or do what or, or let you know what happens afterwards other than to say money makes good toilet paper. I'll, I'll, <laughs> there you go. I'll leave it like that. Money makes good and the last paper. half hour, the last half hour of the film is essentially the investigation. What happened? And that's where Al Hindman and the FBI get involved. And you just want to figure out, are they going to get away with it? Did they get away with it? And what will the ramifications be? The only, yeah, the only negative to me is it wasn't quite gritty enough, but it was a fun watch. I love a heist film. I love a caper film. I mean, uh, the Italian job or any of those kind of films, Ocean's Eleven. I mean, I love those kind of films. This isn't at the same serious level, but it doesn't make it any less enjoyable. So I gave it a 7 out of 10. It's one of those 70s films you just put on and just watch. That's very cool. I've never seen it. I'd love to see it. Where is it streaming at? YouTube. Okay. And I think just the idea of watching guys like Peter Falk and Peter Boyle together acting across from one another... Um, was seems like it would be a joy and to be directed by Friedkin. So, and that that's the period of time. Like he did Sorcerer a year before this film, I believe, and or or after. I don't remember exactly, but um, this was a this was when Friedkin was at the top of his game. Uh, Friedkin in the seventies was like on fire. I'm not saying he didn't make good movies afterwards, but this period of time, I mean, he was making what are a lot of times considered American classics. I don't know if this film falls into that, but I mean, he was he was it was hitting something interesting almost every time out. Yeah. And, uh, this one, I think this was his one he did to have a good time with. Versus... Well, and that's always fun. It's always cool yeah. to see a director, particularly someone who's usually very like hard hitting to kind of, this is the laid back kind of relaxed. And I love these sorts of movies. You reviewed a movie. Um, I can't remember the title. The, of it the Anderson tapes. Yes. Thank you. The Anderson tapes of Sean Connery and that movie. Uh, I haven't seen this one, but that movie, when I got around to seeing it, uh, had that feel, kind of a relaxed, fun time. I think Ocean's Eleven sort of gig, right? Where you yep. you get to bring a lot of these actors together and just have fun with a story that's not taking itself very seriously. The stakes are not incredibly high. You're meant to, to go on this journey with these characters, and it's good escapist fun. Yeah, I mean, if you're anybody that enjoys heist films or one of these films where it's a good ensemble cast, yeah. or it's well-directed. In the 90s, I think of a movie like Sneakers. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Sneakers, or um, what's that one, Red? Oh, yeah, the one later with the uh, the retired uh, assassins or whatever, I think. Yeah, or, yeah you know, yeah, it's yeah. of that, you know, it's, it's, it's serious enough, 
but you're not going to be on the tip of your fingertips. Oh, what's going to happen next? You know, you just won't go with them. Well, I'm, I'm sold on that one for sure. Um, I look forward to seeing both uh, this one and the previous movie you mentioned, although they sound very different. <laughs> they, oh, very different, but, but both good. So what do you got? What do you got next? In the okay, so what I have next is a movie that's actually on Amazon Prime. It's probably be up your alley, Bill, because it's a documentary, and Ooh. it's called Good Night Oppie. Are you familiar with this? I am not. I this movie kind of blew me away. It deals with some of my favorite things. Uh, this is science, not science fiction, but it's uh, it also deals with space travel and with robotics and AI. And so it is at the cusp of what we would traditionally think about science fiction. In the back. Now, Nathan, let me interject. Is this a hard science or can Joe Blow follow it? Joe Blow can follow it, uh, it, it because I'm about to the, the clue you in what it is. When NASA was looking into what, how are we going to explore the surface of Mars? You guys probably remember this, except that, uh, you know, back about 15, 20 years ago when it was all the rage, what's going to happen? You know, you hear about it in the news a little bit. Oh, we're going to send rovers up, right? We're going to put rovers on the surface of Mars and they're going to collect data for us. And hopefully the data they collect will be the kind of thing that we can determine whether Mars, uh, the planet, was ever able to sustain life, right? That it would have a water source or something that could say that this is a planet that life could develop on, which again would change the game, right? Or could potentially change the game. Had it ever been a planet that that kind of thing could happen on? And you probably remember that, or if you if you follow the news at all, at different points you know, over the, the, the intervening years, we'd hear something pop up but this happened, or we've, we've got this bit of information, and uh, nothing, you know, nothing ever earth-shattering or or changing the way our society works or anything, but you'd hear little things that were tantalizing. Here's the interesting thing about this story. So they have two of them. Opportunity is one and spirit are the two rovers that they send there. And they've got these mobile data collectors is what they are. They almost, and when you see them going across the surface of Mars, which is scenes that um, industrial light and magic has recreated the scenes on the surface of Mars. So while we see these scientists, uh, they put them up there and they're supposed to gather information ILM recreates the sequences of the little rovers crossing Mars. So you get that. And it almost, and the film is very much about in a, in a, in a way that doesn't go overboard, anthropomorphizing them. So if you think about a movie like Wally, you're not that far off the mark because you come to care about these two little rovers. I'll tell you why that happens. So what's very interesting here is they were supposed to go up there and collect information. And then they were, they were designed to expire to shut down after three months. Well, they kept going, and they kept going, and eventually, 15 years later, they're still up there puttering around. So, for 15 years beyond the time that these little robots are supposed to expire, they're still trundling across the Martian surface collecting this information. And there's both of them have been put up there. And so, the film is really from the perspective of these diehard guys, the STEM uh, scientists at NASA that uh, the engineers and the rocket scientists and all these people that are here watching these two little robots and realizing they're still up there, they're still going. And the messages that they're getting back from them, because the way they send the, the, the messages back, it's designed uh, to almost mimic like human behavior. So they're already anthropomorphized in that way. But we see all these scientists, the people that created them, the people that have vested interest in what they're doing watching them and interacting with them uh and and they begin to treat them like they're almost like children or or they're on this mission and and we're all watching them and honest to goodness uh 
as you watch this. And they and and every once in a while, someone will pipe in and say, "Guys, this is just like a box of wires, right?" <laughs> like, but the 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 beauty of this film is that they really get into how we as people tend to anthropomorphize things, right? And we tend to do that uh, and, and, and sentimentalize things when we feel that the work or the thing that's happening is important, right? And so this idea of there's a certain sense of wonder. What are what if they find this big discovery? And, it, and it's it, maybe it's on these little robots. They're still up there. They're still running. What can What are they going to do? And it's not unlike, honestly, the drama that gets involved is not unlike the drama of, of finding out if we're going to get Matt Damon off the surface of Mars and the Martian. And you don't expect that from a movie where essentially these are just two little robots. They're not, they aren't truly uh, sentient, but, and they're not even really, you know, artificial intelligence of the, of the way we see in a science fiction film. And yet you get to see a lot of humanity and a way humanity's hopes and dreams are reflected by the images and things that these little robots are sending back. And, and they're the ones up on the surface of Mars. So this movie does a really wonderful job of never becoming sappy, never becoming sentimental. You asked, is this a Joe Blow movie? It is. That's a crowd-pleasing movie. It's a movie I sit down and watch with my kids, and it it really gives – it's that feeling that makes you want to like rush out and and – and, and and grab some electronics and build a robot or or get your telescope out and stare at the stars or uh, head up and go to the air and space museum you know what i mean it's it kind of sends a jolt of um curiosity and and of exploration like through your system and i love that i think this is one of my favorite movies, uh, particularly in the, in the realm of documentaries that i've seen this year and it's just a sweet sweet little movie I am definitely interested in this because you know that I love documentaries and especially ones that appeal to a wide audience that have a bit of a sense of humor. You're going to learn a little, you might, you know, laugh, cry, but at the end of the day, you're going to enjoy and you probably learned a little something along the way too. Yeah. And in some ways, this movie that has to keep within the realm of reality while asking these questions about why do we, why do we feel the need to put a, a human face on everything? You know, that we can understand it. I think that that, puts it almost into the it, it asks better questions than some of the science fiction movies that have spent millions and millions of dollars to recreate these things but it's a lovely movie i like it a lot um uh on, yeah this is this is pretty high for me i was gonna say um, this, is, this is a possible non-horror top 10 oh yeah 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 it did obviously definitely non-horror but yes um yeah i think it i think it's got a good shot at it uh particularly again in terms of documentaries there's maybe a couple others i've seen this year that were as good as this one, but um, not many. So good night, Oppie. And uh, yeah, I, I'm coming in around an 8.5 or a nine on this one. Wow. That's strong considering, you know, I respect your opinion a lot. That's, that's quite the uh, score. So I'm going to have to check it out, but I, but I, I will caution. I'm going to have to watch it when I'm alert. This is an 11 o'clock at night movie. Yeah. And this is a fun one. This is another one you can watch with your daughter and, uh, and your wife. And I think they might get into it because it's um, it's just interesting. It's it's interesting to uh, like as you know, and I've mentioned a couple times tonight. I love movies that allow you to sort of slip into someone else's perspective, even if that perspective is a little box of wires running across the Martian surface. <laughs> Wonderful. Alrighty. Well, I'll be sure to look up Prime and look that one up. Uh, I only have a couple more, and so one of the ones that I had been kind of putting off from watching, not that I didn't want to watch it, just because, you know, life gets in the way, you can only see so many, but one that I always had in the back of my mind was 2022's 
Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Ooh, yeah, I remember this movie. It was something months ago. Yeah, well, I, I, I was just looking up as you were describing your other film, and it came out in August. So it's been out there for a while. But again, I just hadn't got to it. What it's about, according to IMDb, when a group of rich 20-somethings plan a hurricane party at a remote family mansion, a party game turns deadly in this fresh and funny look at backstabbing, fake friends, and one party goes very, very wrong. All right. So this was directed by Helena Rain, I believe, R-E-I-J-N. Uh, stars Amanda Stenberg, who those of you who watch The Hunger Games will recognize. And she was also a voice in Rio, too. And the rest of the film is relatively unknown or lesser actors or actresses. Not in quality, just in their resume. Uh, Maria Balakova, uh, Bakalova, Rachel Sennett. The movie opens with two female lovers in the woods and they're canoodling in the woods and one is professing her love. We're not quite sure where that's going and it kind of cuts away to a bunch of 20-something friends getting together for a party at a large fancy house owned by the actor Pete Davidson. You can tell right away it's stylishly shot and it has a bit of a funky score to it. So those kind of things always intrigue me. Stylishly shot can either be really well directed or pretentious art house. So we're going to have to see where this takes us. But Bakalova, when she enters, she's one of the two female lovers at the beginning, kind of feels like an outsider because this is a large group of friends and she's being brought on by her other friend who obviously is part of the rest of the crew. Now, they're getting to know each other. They're having some drinks. The rain comes down. This hurricane is on its way. They actually lose electricity. They're by candlelight. And they decide to play an old game that they had played, obviously, for years prior called Bodies, 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 where it's essentially kind of a murder mystery game where people go off and hide and run around in the dark. And at certain points, Bodies are shown to be dead, and we have to figure out who it is that perpetrated the crime. Except one of them actually does die. And that kind of leads to a ball of events that happen. Things just start tumbling. So Davidson is found dead and slashed at a certain point in it. And then everybody starts paranoiaing over each other. Who did it? Who was around? Who saw what? Who's lying? Who's telling the truth? Loyalties, friendships, uh, lovers, potential partners. Everybody is questioning everything. And it gets quite violent at a certain point. There's a scene in a basement. Now, I did find it starts to drag as they get petty with each other. They squabble with each other. There's a lot of looking and fumbling around in the dark. It does kind of get a little bit long in that sense. It's a, almost a take. It's a riff on millennial culture. So caught up in the me, the technology, what's going on in my life, and not actually paying attention to the wants and needs of those around you, your friends, your loved ones. So there is that riff on Gen X millennial culture. All right. And it basically 
becomes almost a survival of the fittest with an elimination survival aspect to it. I will say there's a, I love the twist in this, but I'm not going to say what the twist is. You have to watch it. Okay. Another negative. There's just too much listening to people bitch about their (laughs) self-absorbed lives. I've got this going on. I got this business going on. I got Instagram hits to get, I got, I got this money in the, just do what you need to do as a basic human. Well, yeah, and I think, Bill, the thing is, you've hit on something that uh, is a central uh, facet and I think ultimately issue with this movie. I saw it back in August at the theater, and I saw it with a bunch of friends, and uh, I liked it, too. I, I assume you enjoyed it. Um, yep. That it, But the thing that it's trying to do, like you said, where it's sort of a takeoff of an Agatha Christie, Ten Little Indians kind of plot line where... Who's the killer? But it's through the perspective of millennials and this this viewpoint that is very much so self-centered. Your head is so far up your own butt, if you will, that you aren't able to see the context of everything that's happening around you. And that you aren't, you're not really going to be able to figure this out. And it's so funny. We've talked about these movies, the two movies that I've talked about. And then one of the, the first one you talked about, very much uh, this idea of, and I think we're getting a lot of this these days, partially because of the isolation we experienced as people over the past couple of years, and also what we've seen with, uh, with the, the division between people and the need to find villains in every corner, in addition to those villains, twisting facts and truth to the point that there is no uh, objective truth, that we will spin uh, out of control with our with our version of events that feel right to us and bodies 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 is another example another facet of the coin that we've talked about tonight in terms of uh what happens when your perspective is so limited or so twisted by the things that you think and believe but you haven't opened yourself up to really uh experience other viewpoints or even other other foundational elements of life. You know, these people, they live inside of Twitter and in sort of uh, on Instagram and all of that, right? They're constantly thinking about their social media presence and they, they're they kind of floating through their lives in a sense. And that adds an interesting aspect to what's otherwise this classic old dark house. Here's a bunch of people in it and somebody's picking them off. Yeah, like it's, I give it a seven out of 10. It was an enjoyable watch. But this is one of the first times in a while. This isn't a teen film. No. But it it was one of the first times in a while that I felt like I was outside of the target audience. <laughs> or, or, or maybe I was because it's a riff on a, a generation below me. Yes. And I think that that's the deal. Is And so, but the flip side, I think what you nailed is while that is worthwhile and it is pretty, it, it is pretty biting. And by the time you get to the end, it's kind of come full circle and given you yeah. the commentary you're looking for. The, the the probably downfall of the film is it actually doesn't prevent these people from being actively irritating most of the time. Like, I know we try to keep this PG, but there's an expletive word you could probably call all these people. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the movie, though, does play with that. And it has fun with this bodies, bodies, bodies conceit. And the acting is fun. I'm not a Pete. I don't like Pete Davidson that much. Uh, you know who I did enjoy in the movie, though, who I didn't recognize initially is um, Lee Pace, who shows up. Yes. And yes, who's one yes. of the more interesting characters in the film. Yeah. He apparently loves yoga. 
It, yeah, so his character's great. But this is a fun movie, and I think it does have limitations. I'm, I'm giving it the same rating you're giving. It's a seven. It's a down. It's a solid recommendation. Um, it's a horror movie, but it's a it's it's definitely more along the lines of a horror comedy because, it, it, in my opinion. It's it's a it's a horror comedy, but it also has a social piece to it. Yeah, it, it, and that's what I'm saying. It's it's definitely yeah. um, satirical to a degree. It's got something it wants to say, and however, it's not saying it in a subtle way at all. It's, but, a, but, it's just as shrill and as uh, in uh, a grating sometimes as its characters, and that doesn't always work in its favor. Stick with it till the end, because I yes. bloody well love the ending. I I, I, yeah. I just I'm like it done brilliantly. But it's too bad there was a lot of wishy-washy stuff in between. But I will say, so a little bit different from you is I actually thought in the middle, once the once the murder, the first murder has taken place, I thought everything after that, uh, where the movie starts to ratchet up its tensions and almost becomes like this, another take on something like the uh, Louis Bunnell's Exterminating Angel where no one can leave and they don't know what's going on. And again, it's this social, uh, the social microcosm becomes where the horror is is like festering. I thought everything there actually was fun. I thought that once they reached this shrill certain level and they couldn't really go any higher, that it that and they all began to sort of prey upon one another. I thought that's where the movie was at its strongest. That didn't lag for me. To me, the lagging was initially the setup where we were supposed to uh, theoretically care about the romance that's going on or the or the uh, friends that are taking sides between, well, you, you got together with her and, and, and why aren't you together anymore? Like that stuff was meant to be vapid, but it goes on for a bit too long. It takes a while for the central mystery to be set up. And I thought for me, that's where the movie just wasn't just quite sharp enough. Like it got, it, it meanders before it begins to build. And the, the other people that will want to watch this film are people that like a 24 films. This was an A24. Yeah, I mean, it, it, let, let me put it this way. It was a movie I kind of went to see on a whim. It was one of those movies that was like a flip of the coin. Is this gonna? Is it going to be worthwhile or not? I will tell you that I saw the trailer, and the trailer had these characters screaming, I'm, you're so toxic, I'm being triggered, you know? And, and, and they're just repeating catchphrase words that we've heard time and time again over the past few years. And at first you're thinking this movie could be actually obnoxious. and that, But the movie is actually about that element about people living in this box that they just keep making smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And uh, eventually what happens is uh, you can see for yourself, but it's, it's again, that danger of what happens when you leave the world of subjective reality behind completely. It's almost, I almost felt like a watered down version of ready or not. I wouldn't say watered down because I think those two movies are doing something different because ready or not, is sort of stays within what I would say is the classic model. It has things to say. It's got some social things to say, but I think its story stays pretty firmly in the Agatha Christie or that uh, dangerous game mode, and it stays firmly in a horror film. Bodies, bodies, bodies goes somewhere a little different. You know, it, it takes it does go out on a limb and takes a chance. I think to do something a little different, and whether you like that little different. Um, I think you have to have your you have to mind open a little bit to what you expect from a slasher film. I'll say that. Yeah. And um, but I'm I mean, I'm like, gonna go watch that one you just told me about the freaking movie. Oh, um, the yeah, you, I'm excited like about that. All right, well, you know, here on Phantom Galaxy, not everything is always a movie. You know, we've talked about music, we've done books, we've done TV shows, we've done art, whatever kind of pops in our head that we've seen that interests us. 
I wanted to bring your attention to a YouTube channel that I've watched the last little while. I've discovered in the last oh, six months, and I'm really starting to enjoy it. And I've mentioned before, one of the channels that I really like is Good Mythical Morning. And Good Mythical Morning is the I one with, show. with Rhett and Link where they do, you know, they try different foods or they test out technology oh, or yeah. they have a stance on social uh, world and what's aware of going on, you know. I saw them trying to make squid ink candy once. That was rough. (laughs) Now, I'm one of these people that I'll just go down rabbit holes. And if something like something that, you know, they suggest something else. And there's ones that I've watched in the last six months or so by a guy called Stuart Ashens. A-S-H-E-N-S. Go into YouTube. Trust me, ladies and gentlemen. I've recommended this to people at work and they crack up. Go into YouTube and type in Ashens. A-S-H-E-N-S. Stuart Ashens is a man from Britain. I think it's uh, Bristol, if I'm correct. Anybody who's listening from the UK will know where Bristol is. Or if you're a fan of the Bristol Bristol football team. Oh, sorry. Soccer to the Americans. Uh, this, <laughs> he has a channel that's, let's just say it's called Ashens. And underneath it's called Comedy, Technology, Idiocy. <laughs> And what I like about this guy is he's been around since almost the beginning of YouTube. I think he's like 14 years or something he's been doing this. And what initially drew me to him was I did a search for people that try different foods or different products and they show you how they work or whatever. This guy has this brown corduroy couch and all you see is his hands and he's testing different products or he's trying different foods. And he'll tell you in a very sarcastic, dry sense of humor, the way that he feels about it. But he'll be like, he's one of these guys, he has no filter. He'll just tell you. And he appeals to people on many levels. If you're kind of a nerdy kind of guy or girl (laughs) or kid, you're going to love him. If you're a foodie, you're going to love the guy. If you're uh, somebody who just likes to see things that, what the heck is he doing? You're going to love it. If you're somebody that's on a budget, you're going to like him. And I'll tell you why he's done things where he has gone to, I guess in England and there is a, a, a store called Poundland, <laughs> which is their version of the dollar store. And he'll oh, buy okay. a bit, various different products on this Brown corduroy uh, Chesterfield or, or couch or whatever you want to call it. And he'll just go over it and open them and say, Oh, this is crap. This is useless. Or, Oh, this is better than, Oh, this is a three pound product. This is a much quality better. Or he'll, I just went to his channel and he, I just watched one the other day called, are these the best microwave burgers? So <laughs> similar to Dollar Tree in the States. They don't have it here, but you guys have Dollar Tree where you can go yeah. to the back and they'll have some, so he'll buy like. And you know, get like or, uh, like one pound burrito for a buck yes, or something horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So he'll buy these various food items. And tell you, oh, this this bacon is crap, or or the mayonnaise isn't bad, or whatever. He'll also people send him food, so he'll try military rations, or he tried uh, strawberry Jello from 1965 and saw, see if it still worked, or you know various foods that have been a, 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 a bottle of he had a bottle of Dasani water, and I didn't realize they haven't made Dasani for at least ten years. Oh, really? So him and his buddy, at least in the UK, it hasn't been distributed okay. in the UK, uh, tried this. And I thought, it's water. It's clear water. And you go, oh, there's definitely a smell to 10-year-old water. Oh, wow. <laughs> he bought, and I just finished watching one 
where he, I guess at their Poundland store, they sell uh, sandwiches. And he bought like eight or nine different varieties of the sandwiches. And him and his buddy were just sitting there eating them and giving their commentary on what the sandwiches are like. He also has one where he has a random word generator and he goes to like wish.com or Alibaba or whatever they're called. And AliExpress. Yeah. AliExpress, sorry, AliExpress. And he'll type in a random word and he'll buy the first product that pops up that's under five pounds and review it. And so he'll usually choose, he calls like, what's he call them? Like the magic eight. And he'll get eight products. And the last product he spends up to 15 pounds. So fascinating. Uh, right now he, he says he has one that from two months ago where I bought some undelivered mail now and I will open and regret this decision. <laughs> so he, that is but, funny. But he also does, he also does like technology products, old computer things. What does he mean? He bought undelivered mail. Now this is this took me down another rabbit path. There are places in the U.S. I don't know if they're in Canada, in the U.S. where you can actually buy mail that went unclaimed. So is this similar and, to like when they people show up and buy the like lots, you know, like the yes, um, the Amazon yeah, returnings. So he he's bought he's bought package a package of mail that somebody had delivered. It went unclaimed. It sat in storage for well, a month or two months. And then it's just considered abandoned. You don't know what you're getting, but you paid 30 pounds for four different bags of things. It could be underwear. It could be AirPods. You have no idea what it is. You know, he's got a really thing. He really loves toys. So he'll buy, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll look at Poundland if they have a different old toys or it has one weird old action figures. Or people will send him and he plays with and he tells you. Like, he's he's very dry. He's Sometimes his buddies are on with him and they'll try various foods. He's into technology. He's one of my go-tos. If I'm just sitting there laying on the couch and I want I don't have anything to do, type in Ashens. He is absolutely fascinating. I know he's going to get tons of hits from this podcast, obviously. Yeah, yeah right. Um, but... But but like somebody who's listening who just has 10 minutes to kill before work or they're going to go have a shower or they're sitting in the morning or whatever, throw it in. And I, I love the guy. Well, and if you're if you're somebody who has kids and who who uh, like watch almost any vapid and inane thing on YouTube, um, you know, you're just talking about bodies, bodies, bodies. I feel like sometimes <laughs> I feel like some of those people, their YouTube channels uh, must run YouTube channels on there. But uh, when you find something like this, it's a little bit interesting, a little bit off the beaten path. And uh, let me ask you, content-wise, is it something I can watch yeah. with my kids? Oh, absolutely. Oh, very cool. He might say the odd swear word, but only because okay. he's like, oh, this tastes like shh. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it's a 30-year-old bag of Doritos or something. Like, I just looked at what he had out a couple months ago, and he did a whole week where he reviewed and played with fake Lego. Nice. All the knockoff Lego products. Well, well my son and I were just talking about that because it's funny because the Mega Blocks is a knockoff Lego, but it became popular now at knockoff Lego because it got the Pokemon, like uh, it, it got to use the Pokemon, um, you know, uh, trademark. And, and, and so Pokemon as a uh, licensing, they have the Pokemon licensing, which makes them, doesn't matter if they're good Legos or not, they're the ones that make Pokemon Legos. He, he does a, a, quite a few videos of, Weird foods he's bought off Amazon from international countries. 
you know, you know, it could be, you know, dried squid. It could be weird candies. He has one where I watched uh, chocolate bars in England that have savory elements. It was like curry and chips chocolate bar. And he'll try it. Or Christmas dinner in a can. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of Asian delicacies that he'll try, you know. So, yeah. Is it brain surgery? No. You know, do you have to be... Uh, you know, the top of the intelligence chain to like this. No, but I like to think I'm fairly intelligent and I love this guy. No, this so, sounds great. There, there is, I think that you, when you find your niche in, in uh, online with something like YouTube, you could do it a, a, a myriad of ways. One is to just sort of do any kind of n- numb nuts thing you can think of. And it becomes a geek show. The other is the, it's the kind of picking people's curiosity to sort of, you know, it's, it's the other side of that but it's a it's a maybe a more gentle side where it's let me let me ask a stupid question that you probably run through your mind but you never took the time to actually do this you know or you would never go to the lengths to like probe that weird thought you had so i sounds fun to me i'd definitely check it out the video i just watched before i came down somebody had sent him uh, it was a food special about, you know, trying weird foods or whatever. Somebody had sent him a box of beer bread re- uh, recipe from Larry the Cable Guy. Yeah, I'm sure that's quality. Well, one, in England, he didn't know who the heck Larry the Cable Guy was. And the guy who had sent him put a sticky note and said, you don't know who this guy is and be thankful that you don't. <laughs> so, so they actually showed him making this because they'd never heard of beer bread. And they put in like a pint can of Carlsberg. And he goes, after they were done, he goes, what a good waste of a can of Carlsberg. And, <laughs> and it's supposed to be, a, it was supposed to be baked in like a, 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 the tin that you would normally make brownies or whatever. in. but he goes, my ex-girlfriend nicked it when we were breaking up. So I had to use my mom's Pyrex. That's, <laughs> oh my God. It's, it's just, you know, again, you know, my silliness, I can watch lots of different things, but this is, you know, if, if, if you're thinking that this is like your documentary about Mars, this is not. No, no, but it sounds it sounds funny. And again, we're talking about uh, YouTube here. It only needs to sort of like capture your fancy for about 15, 20 minutes, right? Yeah, and I have no doubt I'm going to go back upstairs after we record and watch another one. And as I clicked off to hit record, I lost my... Uh... You lost your what? My my place with my troll thingy on it, like uh, the synopsis. Oh. There it is. Okay. Okay. Uh, and my next movie is a very new movie. It was just released onto Netflix, and kind of surprisingly, has ended up as the number one movie streaming on Netflix this past weekend. I say surprisingly because to me, this is a movie that I wouldn't have expected to sort of leap right to the charts and over top of newer movies like bullet train that just landed on Netflix. But this one's right in my wheelhouse. And I imagine it's probably in the wheelhouse of a lot of people uh, who, who listen to the podcast. This is called trolls from 2022. And uh, it is a Norwegian film that is essentially exit. <laughs> it is what it says on the tin, which is it's about a giant mountain troll wakes from its slumber and begins to uh, just pillage across the countryside, destroying things sort of haphazardly as it looks for its uh, its lost kin, its relatives that have uh, that were eliminated 
you know, in ancient times earlier by uh, by the Christians who came into the area and wanted to destroy the trolls. Uh, because it's a Norwegian film, it, it it really deals a lot with the folklore and backstory that uh, anyone who's sort of familiar with the Scandinavian folklore knows that trolls and kind of magical mythical creatures play a large part of it. And films in recent years have sort of started catching on that more modern movies that now have the technology to bring all these creatures to life. So uh, what you get here, visually speaking is a giant troll with a tail and moss growing off of his craggy looking body parts that look like they've uh, were born right from the side of the mountain. He's a really cool looking uh, monster. He's gigantic. We're talking sort of a Godzilla sized monster. And if I had to describe this movie, it's essentially like a Roland Emmerich uh, film set in Norway. So this has a lot of, for better or worse, this has a lot of similarities to Roland Emmerich's own Godzilla movie they made in 98. Uh, thematically speaking however i'd say in some ways this is the better remake of that movie which i was not a fan of when it released uh, for a lot of reasons one of being it wasn't very godzilla like uh it told a story about a giant creature that was sort of on the run that was hunted that didn't belong in a society and so its destruction was sort of haphazard and it was lonely and it sort of didn't belong and we were headed towards a collision point where it had to be destroyed, but those people trying to rid the world of it were also a little ambivalent about the fact that they had to, to get to get rid of it, you know, because it, it ultimately was an animal out of its element. And that plot, uh, with some similarities, meaning that almost all the human characters are not nearly as interesting as the giant monster, uh, show up here in this film. But Troll is is a better movie than that one. Uh, maybe not by a by as much as you might like, but it's a fun sort of by the numbers disaster pick that uh, again, well, the human characters we don't care greatly about them, but we get them in your usual uh, varieties. Meaning that we've got a young scientist. Uh, this is played by Anna Marie Wilman. She plays Nora Tidman, and in the beginning we see her and her father standing on a mountain when she's younger, and he's explaining to her how some of the mountain ranges were formed by these uh, nine trolls that were turned to stone on the way back from a troll wedding. The fun thing about this movie is because it's set in modern times, uh, the disparity between melding these very fantastical myths and the modern setting that you'd expect in, you know, uh, any sort of disaster film, that becomes kind of fun because instead of having these super realistic effects or, storms or tidal waves roar Urthog, the director directed a, a really good disaster movie called the wave uh, but instead of having those elements that we expect to see in a more natural movie we have a giant troll so that makes it sort of a norwegian kaiju movie which i'm all in for i the plot as far as what occurs in the movie i'll really leave for you to discover because it it it, it deals with uh, all of the various official characters coming together with the help of the scientist and figuring out how do we stop the troll. Of course, you've got the military wants to do one thing. The scientists want to do something else. In the middle, there's a desire to preserve the creature if it's possible, but that might not be possible. There's nothing, absolutely nothing new at all in this movie. Even the giant troll seems like he sort of was ported over from a movie back in 2012, about 10 years ago, uh, 2011, 2012, called Troll Hunter, which I think you've seen, Bill. Um, yes, I have. and that movie I found was very original, uh, very smart and clever. It was more of a comedy. It had some horror undertones to it. 
And it was also found footage. So it was a very interesting movie. And the, the thing about that movie I really liked is there was a sort of, at the center of it was sort of a character study about this lonely troll hunter that felt very uh, remorseful about this job that he has, which is to rid the countryside of trolls for the government in a sort of secretive operation. Uh, that movie was constantly inventive. There were so many different kinds of trolls. There were lots of rules set up involving how the trolls can sniff out Christians and want to eat them, which I found funny. And that that plays over into this film. So a lot of the elements that were in that movie are also in this one. Uh, I remember a lot of people saying at the end of Troll Hunter, we see this massive troll sort of striding across the countryside, and we get a couple minutes of that, and I remember people saying, you know, I, I wanted more of the giant troll. I wanted to see more of that. If you were one of those people... Troll might be for you because essentially the entire movie is that, that giant troll destroying cities. It's done in a, in a vein that is much more like straightforward disaster movie. So if that's what you wanted, if you didn't quite like some of the more, uh, you know, quieter moments in Troll Hunter and the kind of strange sort of quirkiness that was in that film, maybe this one is more for you. I enjoyed it. But I enjoyed it to a point, meaning that I wanted to see things that shook up the storyline a little bit. This is by the numbers. It's fun. You get your popcorn. You sit down. I watch it with my kids. We enjoyed it as a disaster movie. I'd say it is made sort of in the Roland Emmerich game, except I think that uh, the director has a, a better handle on what he wants to achieve. And so he keeps a lot of like really stupid comedy out of it. He keeps a lot of the, he keeps the characters at a level where the, it, like they are in an old fashioned Godzilla movie, a real Godzilla movie where the characters are just sort of there to move along a basic plot and keep us in proximity to the creature. So as I said, there were things I liked it conceptually about the 98 Godzilla. I don't think it was a God, good Godzilla movie and it wasn't a good movie, but there were ideas in there about this sort of a hunted creature trying to escape and being pursued that I enjoyed. And I think they've taken those elements that worked and got rid of all the rest. This is also not a, this isn't an excessively long movie, which I like. This is not, this is an hour and 40 minutes. This isn't a two and a half hour epic. So it, it keeps you about where you want to be with this sort of movie. It's similar to some of the sci-fi channel movies, but it's better made. It's more engaging. The characters aren't great, but they're not bad. Uh, and the special effects, I, I really enjoy. I just I just liked being able to see when we have the, the planes zooming in to attack the monster or the frightened locals looking up that what they're seeing instead of some, you know, big scaly uh, spidery looking monster, we have this, big troll with his big pot gut his been his his beard that looks like a forest growing upside down and his swishy tail that's funny to me so i enjoy troll i think uh it's not it's not an amazing film i give it a 6.5 i really did have a good time with it i just wanted a little bit more creativity in it. and i think had they focused the story in and given this a little bit more um heft it could have been a more solid movie overall i enjoy the troll parts the best i think that we spend a little too much time like this is always a, a complaint right with the human elements but i think the other thing is that this is almost just follows the follows the tried and true formula just a little too closely there are no surprises uh outside no outside of the giant troll but he shows up pretty early and then he's in it for the rest of the movie so my question is, is like a lot of these kind of films, it sounds great, by the way, Nathan, but 
in a lot of these kind of films, are the human characters basically throwaways because the star is the troll? Or do the humans bring anything to it that you would expect a more than your average Joe film? No, I really don't think they do. They do their job fine. I mean, the actors are 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 perfectly fine. But I would say that they don't add anything of interest to it. I'd say even less so than uh, people complain about the recent Godzilla films, the legendary Godzilla films, Godzilla King of the Monsters and Godzilla versus Kong. I like those characters better than these. Those at least had some quirkiness to them. Uh, you know, Brian Cranston in the first movie, he disappears pretty quickly. But uh, I, I like some of the characters in those other films better than the ones here. How, that being said, that 98 Godzilla movie and some of these similar movies, they spend so much time trying to give these characters lots of definition and traits and things like that, that uh, that they become actively irritating, that they actually impede the rest of the film. And I don't think that happens here. So I think as a, as a big fan of kaiju movies, I think this one is kind of right down the middle. It's about as much fun as one of maybe the, the lesser... Uh, you know, classic Godzilla movies or something like that, or a movie like Gorgo or something like that. It does what you want it to do. It's and and it's in that vein, but it's it's not going to do a, a, a it's not going to do a jot more. You know what I mean? It's going to do exactly exactly that. And if you're going in expecting something else, I think people who are seeing, you know, people praising it and it, it's showing up number one on Netflix. This is not going to blow your mind. This is not Guillermo del Toro's Troll. You know what I mean? But uh, if you know what you're getting, uh, you'll have a good time. Yeah, it sounds like the kind of movie <coughs> you've had a long day. You've had a long day at work, or you're you know you're just in the middle of something. You put it on and you just kind of see what happens. Yeah, this is that sit at the couch with your yeah. family and watch yeah. movie you've talked yep. about many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, a sit down on the couch movie, or as I said, you know you've had a long day. You just want to have a cold drink and watch a movie, and this is the kind of thing you would throw on. And, and and sometimes and there's nothing wrong with those kind of movies. I've enjoyed many of those kind of movies. Just don't go in expecting, you know, Sir Lawrence Olivier in it. No, you know, and and this being the holiday, like if you if it, you come to uh, um, Christmas time, you're looking for a movie to to play in the afternoon after people have eaten, the presents are up. But this this would be a perfectly fine thing. You know, it, it would fit and, in perfectly. Uh, it sounds like the kind of thing, like if you miss a minute or two while you're cleaning something up, you're not going to drastically have the plot affected by that. No, no, it's it's a it's a by the numbers giant monster movie with uh, sub in a giant troll, but it's well done, it's well made, and I had fun with it. I was going to say, initially, it kind of sounds a little bit like uh, King Kong '76, but that had its own dynamic. You know what, though, that's not a bad. That's not a bad. Um, that's not a bad comparison. The one thing I'll say about Kong 76, that's an oddball movie. I like the characters in that movie better. I liked, uh, of course, I like Jessica Lang, but I like Charles Grodin's, uh, you know, uh, company man. And I like Jeff Bridges. And, and so that movie's kind of quirkier characters worked for me. And I liked Kong. Kong had a little more personality. The troll, they don't quite, that's the other thing. They don't quite give him enough personality to be more than a special effect. So... I was going to say, but how are the effects? Are they practical? Are they CGI? They're CGI, but they look good. They, honestly, like I mentioned, they look like someone took that troll from the end of Troll Hunter and just put him in a full movie. But the effects are good. Um, special effects in terms of the, the the rampage, it looks decent without looking like a sci-fi channel movie. So you'll have uh, sort of 
CGI camera work and camera effects that will spin around a car and we'll see the giant foot come down over them. So these are well done. These would these would be perfectly at home in a big budget uh, blockbuster movie playing in the movie theater. So the effects are top notch. You will get that so, with this movie. So this one, even though it, it wasn't, would be worthy of at least seeing on the big screen. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, this is not we aren't talking an excessively cheap looking movie here. This movie looks great. Um there, no, the, the technical this, credits this are superb. I was going to say this isn't Slithis or something. No, like gosh, no, no, no. Well, Roar Orthog is a, is a good director. His most recent movie before this, and actually, I like this movie better than that movie was he did the Tomb Raider remake from a few years back. Uh, okay. So he's he's guns. He did Cold Prey. So Bill, uh, his oh, first movie, song. he sort of did out of the gate in two thousand six. Uh, I think it was out of the gate. Uh, I don't know if it, I think it was his first uh, feature length movie was Cold Prey. So. You get an idea for that, and since then he's done, um, you know, a handful of bigger special effects movies. The Wave, which I enjoyed, I've I've liked all those movies to some degree. I just thought that the Tomb Raider movie needed, um, needed a little more jollier sense of fun, and that's what this movie has. So, yep, um, I I did enjoy it. Perfect. Now, would it be okay for me to watch with Ella? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say this is probably around a PG thirteen, uh, and the PG thirteen would come in mostly it's it's rated tv 14 i didn't find i think there might be a couple of you know swear words again there's two ways to watch this you can watch it dubbed um with english dubbing or you can watch it uh with english subtitles and in the original language and i think i always say that's the way to watch these movies but yeah this is a perfectly fine if if you have kids that are used to watching these you know kind of uh disaster style movies it's perfectly fine and i'd say that it's uh it actually keeps the content mostly to the giant monster destruction. So uh, it's not like those Michael Bay transform movies where you're worried about like 17 different misogynistic sex jokes <laughs> uh, or, or, or something like Deadpool. Yeah. Oh, and the, well, the Deadpool's a rated R. This would be a, this would be firmly okay, a PG 13, yeah, yeah. but I'd say it's maybe even a little more tame than that. Okay. It's a, it's a, it's a light PG. Yeah. Yeah. I think this troll may eat a couple people, but uh, he's not, he's not, he's not a, he's not a bad guy. He just, uh, it's kind of he's just big, he's big. He's out of his element, and he can smell Christian blood every once in a while. <laughs> okay, so so pagans, you're fine. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think many pagans are eaten in this movie. So you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> right. sure Fox News will have an have a you know uh, expose on this later. All right, this is uh, th- this is great. Thanks, Nathan, because it is one that I'm trying to squish in, but the days are diminishing, and there's only so many hours in the day when you got. This probably time won't make so. your list, but it's worthwhile just to crack a beer. When when you here's what you do: you wait till you finish your list, and you're exhausted from all these serious and dark horror movies you've been watching, and then you, your congratulatory movie throw and troll with Ella and sit on the couch and watch it. This is this is my. Uh, uh, 11 treat. o'clock yeah. after Christmas. <laughs> yes, treat, yeah. exactly right. That would be great. That'd be great. That's the way to ring in the, yeah. Ring in the new yes. year or something. Yeah, it was Jen, let's hold hands. Let's watch the ball. No, let's watch Troll. All right, perfect. All right. So thanks for that, Nathan. Now, my next one is a 2022 film. And last night, actually, I went to watch one and I hadn't perused Prime for a while. So I went on Prime and I looked around. And one thing I, I dislike about Prime is you go to watch something and it's what you have to pay for. And then it's TV shows. I just want to watch movies that I don't have to pay seven ninety nine for. 
So I go and I uh, flip through 2022 films, and I wasn't looking for anything in particular, uh, horror, drama, action, comedy, documentary, whatever. And so I came across one. I had seen the name. I really hadn't heard much about it, although a lot of people had. And the IMDb rating was 7.1. So I'm like, oh, okay, this must be worth watching. And that's 2022's Where the Crawdads Sing. And the thing that sold me on it, according to IMDb, is drama, mystery, thriller. And then I ran upstairs and talked to my wife, Jen, and I said, Jen, do you want to watch? And she was in the middle of reading a book. She's a big reader. So she goes, no, but I will probably watch it later. But she goes, I think it's a romance. I'm like, well, that's not how it was described. But there are elements of that as well. So drama, mystery, thriller, romance, uh, adventure, not really adventure, but you're through a tale. So what is this film about? It, the IMDb description is, a woman who raised herself in the marshes of the Deep South becomes a suspect in the murder of a man with whom she was once involved. That's a, that's a mouthful for a, a short sentence. The movie <laughs> is two hours, and f- two hours and five minutes, so make sure you uh, strap in for a little bit extra. The cast is fairly large, but the main characters are down to about three or four. All right. This was directed by Olivia Newman, who I wasn't that familiar with. She did a film called First Match, and she's directed a few episodes of Chicago Fire, among other things. The main star is Daisy Edgar Jones. And for those of you that are genre fans, you will know her from the movie this year, a strong movie, Fresh. And she was also in the television show War of the Worlds. I'm not sure where that's playing. Maybe you know, Nathan? Oh, um, I'm trying to remember what it's on. Is um, it like an Apple Plus TV or is it Something like, like that on or... one of those. Yeah, I don't know off the top yeah. of my head. It has Taylor John Smith, who was in Cruel Intentions and the American version of Martyrs. It has Harris Dickinson. And I couldn't find anything that he had been in that I was familiar with. That doesn't mean it's not big. I just had never heard of it. And the other big name, uh, big name, the other name of note would be David Strathairn. Oh, I like and David Strath- a lot. Yeah. Yeah. If you, he's one of those, he's one of those actors. You can't name him by name, but when you see him, you go, okay. I can name him I've by name. Him he, he's had a good, he's had a, a good run of movies. I think he's been in a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Like for those of us who are in the genre, you would know him from 2014's Godzilla. Yeah, he was one of those uh, one of those um, military blanket types. I was just talking about. <laughs> he was good though. He's good. He was there. the guy. Yeah, he was the guy that gave orders and just got blown up by the laser at some point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was also in Lincoln. He was in L.A. Confidential. I think he's got over good night and good luck. I mean, yeah, tons. He's been in tons. And so, and the other thing about this film is it's based on a novel by Delia Owens. And it's, it was done by Reese Witherspoon's production company. So people, it became popular, one, I think, because people liked the book. And two, fans of Reese Witherspoon flocked to it. And I think it got a lot of buzz within the Facebook and the postal board community, you know, the message boards. So it had, I think, a built-in audience going in. So it starts in Barkley Cove, North Carolina. I'm assuming it's modern times within the last year or two. uh, It's uh, two kids 
find a body on the edge of a swamp, found underneath a tall lookout, and it's obviously a dead body. And so these kids are riding their bike, and they see this, and they get in contact with the with the sheriff or the police department, and they come out. And it's underneath a lookout. The police investigate how this may have happened, because there's a, a multi-step lookout that uh, I'd say it's maybe 30, 40 feet up in the air. Someone has fallen, but there's no footsteps leading up to it. And so there's a bit of a mystery. How did this body get here? How did this body die? This person die? What were the circumstances around it? Nobody seems to know. So there's an eerie atmosphere in the setting, the swamp, you know, like it's, you know, like in uh, uh, Live and Let Die in the swamps of Florida and a lot of those movies that are down set in the swamps, uh, Hatchet, all those ones that are down. I just finished it, watching Return of Swamp Thing. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Return of Anything in the swamp, you've got an advantage right away just with the uh, I remember that movie Southern Comfort. You ever see that one? With the soldiers I, I being have. hunted in the swamp. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's lots of those kind of films. Uh, and what's the one that we just talked about just off air? Uh, Bear Lake? The Bigfoot oh, film? Oh, The Creature from Black Lake. Yeah. Creature from Black Lake. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Again, set in the swamp. So Edgar Jones all of a sudden is chased in a boat in the swamp and gets arrested and charged with the murder of the body uh, played by uh, who was someone plays the body <laughs> or, or sorry. Uh, yeah. Well, as the story goes on, we get to know the person whose body is laying. Gotcha. There. So I believe that was uh Taylor John Smith who it was his body laying there and we get to know the background, but Edgar Jones is charged with it. Okay. And here we f- don't know who she is. She doesn't speak a lot. She's thrown into jail. And David Strathern is a recently retired uh, prosecutor, I believe. And he goes in and he chooses to defend her as a lawyer, as an older lawyer. But he's been in that town forever. She's been in the town forever. So they've kind of crossed paths a few times. So he kind of knows what he's getting himself into. So we get uh, Edgar Jones's life story and it's told in flashbacks and it's also told in flashbacks by her recollection and in testimony in the trial that will come afterwards. She starts living poor with a a dad who is abusive, likes to drink, slaps the wife around, slaps the brother around and the rest of the family leaves one by one. They just literally wait till the father is out uh, looking for food Uh, fishing and they take off, but she chooses to stay and she has a bit of loyalty to the father. And at at some point the father went out drinking and gambling and he never came back. So she's left with this house in the swamp, probably from the age of 15 on to kind of survive on her own. And she's kind of an outcast in the community. She's seen as the girl with no shoes. She doesn't have a lot of money. She lives not where a lot of people would ever choose to live. And so that's her background coming into this. And then she's arrested. What's going on right now? So Taylor John Smith takes a shine to her. And he takes her books and teaches her how to read. And they develop a romance. And then he leaves to go to college. So he, I wouldn't say he's taking pity pity on her, but he was curious about her, realized she's a good person, and she realized that she did not know how to read these books. 
And so he kind of takes it upon himself to get her to the level that most people should be at at that age. And my one of the parts that I don't like about the film is the pacing is really slow at times. It's a two hour and five minute film. And there's a lot of time just with Taylor Jones or sorry, uh, what's his name? Uh, Taylor John Smith and Edgar Jones reading and laying on the beach and making out and okay, get on with it. Get on with it. Get on with it. That's what most uh, of the audience showed up for bill. This is- I know that's what, that, that's not my, that's not my bag. Maybe some people wanted that end this of it. That, that wasn't me. Oprah book club movie, man. What are you? Exactly. But, but Strathburn comes out of, uh, Strathburn comes out of retirement to defend Jones. Okay. And then it flips back, like it flips back and forth. And then we get the relation, uh, Harris Dickinson comes into the picture and after uh, John Smith leaves for college, Dickinson takes a shine to her and he tries to romance her and woo her. And so it turns out because she's living near the swamp, she has a really good recollection of a lot of the shells and the fish and the uh, uh, local insects and the shellfish. And she becomes quite knowledgeable about it to the point where she's sketching them all out. She ma- she notices their habitat and she almost creates her own book, Encyclopedia Britannica back in the day, for those that remember, of the local fauna of the swamp. And she gets the attention of the, uh, of, uh, the writers. Uh, and she becomes a writer and of the publishers who want to get her knowledge and create a book for this. And she's trying to make sure she owns the house that she lives in. She has to pay $800 in back taxes. So she sells all of these, the rights to her pictures to the publisher and she gets a a forward of money and she's able to pay off the back taxes. In the meantime, there's a, a very awkward, quick and unromantic love scene with Jones. And uh, Dickinson, which is a very awkward loss of virginity scene, which is not romantic or sexy in the least. Uh, But most of the story is told through court testimony. And it gets down to uh, uh, John Smith comes back from college. Dickinson's kind of put his hands in her. They're kind of fighting over her. And Dickinson kind of takes his way upon her. And it leads to uh, a not so acrimonious ending to their relationship. And I really don't want to say a lot more because it's going to kind of lead you down the path to the body. Okay. And what I like about it is there's an element of the law because it's, it has some testimony back and forth of her being charged for murder and they bring these witnesses up. And that's how a lot of the story gets told. To the point where there's some elements of To Kill a Mockingbird. There's a grand old courtroom in the South. It's a social outsider accused of a horrific crime. A respected lawyer within the community comes in to represent the underdog. He's calm, level-headed, and respected within the community. Now, is it nearly that? No, I would put To Kill a Mockingbird in my top 20 all-time films. I'm not saying that. But there are some parallels for those who want to draw them back and forth. There are some very strong performances. Edgar Jones and Strathairn, I thought were very well 
acted or they acted very well with their characters. I thought they were the two standouts in this film. Did the film completely work for me? Not exactly. There is not enough to me as someone coming at it from who has a legal background and a historical background. There wasn't enough courtroom scene at all. That was much more riveting to me than the romance end of it. I know I'm going to get some emails saying, oh, Bill, you're just a big cold-hearted. No, I'm not a cold-hearted guy, but that's not what I wanted. I thought they spent too much time on that, not enough time on the last 20 minutes of the film. Now, there was a nice twist. I'm not going to say what it is. It was a nice little, a little coin thrown into the pond at the end of the film for those that stuck it out. So it was one of those movies. Sorry, go ahead. I was to say, are you recommending this one, Bill? Sounds like a I would give hand. this a six. Yeah, it's a six and a half out of ten for me. I would recommend watching it. The production value is good. The acting is strong, and there is a good story there. I just don't think that the way it was represented and the way that they played it out was to my taste. Let's put it that way. It seemed like a, one of those ones where it was based on a book and they tried to condense, I don't know, a 400-page book into a two-hour movie and you obviously miss some things and you emphasize some things over others. I, I haven't read the book. I didn't know, you know, those of you who are readers might be more familiar with the book and or the author, but I, w- I would say watch it, but it's not going to make my year end, of the, year end list. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the book. I know now my mother was a big fan of the book, and actually, and she's not a race out to the theater and watch it kind of person when it comes to movies, but she actually went out to the theater to see this when it came out. And uh, I know you haven't read the book, but I think she essentially echoed what you said is that it was fine, but that it it suffered uh, from the condensing of the of this book story to the movie. Now that's always going to happen, but I think people who are uh, when you have the right team of people uh, condensing the right story, they can do it in a way where you can still really get in, into the movie. But a lot of times what happens is it just uh, it loses some of its structure and some of its substance. Now, I don't I can't speak because I haven't read the book, but I've, I've heard a couple of people back up. Essentially, what you're saying is that it kind of feels like a rushed, incomplete version of the story they were familiar with. It, it, quite frankly, it felt kind of like an HBO movie. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Well, maybe an HBO movie from the 90s. They, this has the 1990s oh, yeah. written all yeah. over it, Bill, like the way you're describing it. Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of a bit of the feel of, you know, like in the Garden of the uh, a Good and Evil. Yeah, mid Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of adaptations like that. Yeah, movies like that that, yeah. uh, that kind of, you know, they are they're adapting a popular book, but they kind of just end up with the Cliff Notes version. Yeah, this is a a mild recommend. Okay. That's what I would put it at. So anybody out there that disagrees with me, I understand why. I I just was looking for a bit more grit to the movie. Okay. And Nathan, what do you got next, buddy? Okay, so uh, let's let's talk about a movie that's out in theaters right now uh, that... I saw a few weeks about uh, right before Thanksgiving, so a few weeks back, and it's a it's a film that I feel like I've been seeing previews for all year uh, for a very long time, and I give it credit because uh, every time I would see this preview, 
I come away with a different feeling about what exact type of movie it was. And when I finally walked into the film itself, the movie that I got was even different than that. This is 2022's The Menu. It's directed by Mark Mylod. I'm not going to go into a lot of plot synopsis on this one because honestly, uh, this is one that's really going to work best for people when you know very little. And Bill, I know you haven't seen the movie either, and I know you're looking forward to seeing it. So I, I'm going to keep this uh, very light on plot details and focus uh, on things that I think uh, what works, what what doesn't work, if that's the case, and, and, and things like that. And, and try to keep it so I give you a feel for the movie without discussing it, because this is one that I think is going to be built... Um, Pretty strongly on walking in without a lot of expectation or uh, understanding of what you're getting. And uh, that's true of the characters, and that should be true of the people, uh, the viewer in this case. So the movie's The Menu. Uh, this synopsis, again, from Letterboxd, just, I think just about as far as I want to go with it in terms of the very basic gist. And I'll, I'll describe a little of the characters. But a couple travels to a coastal island to eat at an exclusive restaurant where the chef has prepared a lavish menu with some shocking surprises. And that's, I think that's a pretty good basic description. Uh, the cast here is where I want to kind of focus on. Anya Taylor-Joy uh, is the person we're introduced to first, and she is there getting ready to get on the boat that's going to take them to that island with uh, Nicholas Holt. And you guys have seen Nicholas Holt, a ton of movies. Uh, he's uh, MTV shows. He's in The Great, where... Uh, he, he, he's kind of, he's another guy like Justin Long, who seems like a very affable, nice guy, but has in recent years made a pretty good, uh, career out of playing, uh, jerks, right? Like guys that, uh, that are kind of underneath the, the affable veneer, they're kind of scumbags <laughs> and then they, but they're still charming to a degree. So we aren't sure exactly what their relationship is, but we know that they're, uh, they're together and they're about to go and have this dinner. He, Nicholas Holt's character is a kind of one of these extreme foodies where he's, he talks about everything in a heightened sort of almost pretentious way. And this is like his main event. He's so excited for this. Uh, he offhandedly remarks that the it's, a, it's upwards of a thousand dollars, uh, for this for this meal a thousand over it's a it's upwards of over a thousand dollars a head for each person so uh now anya taylor joy doesn't seem too impressed by that she's uh but she's going along with it for him we again we don't know many details about their relationship and there's a whole kind of cast of characters that they're getting on this uh boat with that's going to ferry them to the island and all of them are there for the same meal we have um janet mcteer plays this food critic a restaurant critic that is going along with her editor and john leguizamo is getting is gets on the the uh ferry there and they're looking at him and saying oh it's that guy it's the actor so uh as far as i know he's not playing he's not actually playing john leguizamo but he's playing a sort of uh facsimile of john leguizamo he's playing an actor who's had some hits who's popular to some and to others you know they could take or leave his movies and uh, like Leguizamo has been having a little bit of a career renaissance. I think it's a guy I've actually always liked. Some of his early, uh, early films were maybe a little grating, but he, yeah, I liked him. He's, he was in one of the last uh, uh, 
Romero dead films. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think he, he's a guy who's a very interesting actor. I think he always brings something to the table. Sometimes uh, people, you know, could turn their nose up at him. But I, he's a guy I've always liked. And I think he's really, he's just gotten better over time. I think he's also honed yeah. his craft that people who also know, have started to recognize him a little bit more. I mean, I he's a guy I'd happily see as the lead, but he very rarely gets that opportunity. But he's he's very good in this film. Uh, but he's one of a, a cast of, of tons of people, Reed Bernie and Judith Light, uh, Hong Chow. There are three guys who get on this boat who are like the kind of um, finance bro guys, or tech bros that work for some uh, company. And they're there on, an, on a, an evening out. When they get there, everything is opulent and... Uh, you you get the idea that this is going to be uh, uh, these are pretentious people that are going to partake of a very pretentious meal, something that uh, will blow their minds, but it's going to be done in such a way that's just beyond lavish, beyond uh, uh, the expectations of your average dinner experience. This is something that uh, uh, for them, it's like a Mount Everest experience. And a lot of this is down to the chef. They're all here anticipating this chef who's almost almost like uh the the way they are approaching this as if he's like this uh this artist that is about to you know the same way that you might have a concert pianist or a great painter come out that he's going to come out and do art for them in the form of uh this meal and so that's kind of how everything is stage set ray fines plays the chef and when this movie gets into the meal itself, the way it is structurally broken down is kind of brilliant because we see uh, the food when it comes out, we get a little title card that tells us exactly what the title of the food is, all the ingredients, and we have course one comes up. That seems pretty straightforward initially, but it becomes one of the better uses of the satire in this film, which is all about these people with these great, grand expectations who are very much about superficial experience and spectacle and uh, there's a lot this movie has in common in some ways with another movie that came out over the summer nope about how people process things and and expectations that people have for things but this is a very different movie uh because there's a, a there's a contained feel to it and when they all sit down they're slowly my lot starts to sort of inject notes of the sinister into what's going on there's a lot of satire uh we see the the movie is definitely sort of poking and prodding at these people we we see that maybe even the chef himself is poking and prodding these people and their pretensions and their expectations but we still aren't exactly sure what's going on through anya taylor joy's eyes we get to see uh someone who isn't used to this world processing it and looking at it and recognizing where the holes and the chinks in the armor are with these people. And that makes it fun. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to stay away from where the movie goes because each course has a different warped element to it that begins to set up expectations. And then those expectations are dashed for something else. But as we go along, we are spiraling further and further down and further and further away from uh, the both the guests' expectations and from sort of conventional, uh, a conventional film plot. Here's what I do want to say. There are elements of satire here. There's a lot of satire here. There are elements of surrealism that are balanced with elements of a thriller. 
There is an overall vibe of a horror film, I think, in how the movies approach. But the co- the comedy is there too. This is probably first and foremost a satirical comedy, but it has a lot to say. So this is definitely a social satire. I would say that it dares uh, a lot of similarities to a movie like uh, Louis Bunnell's Exterminating Angel, which was about a dinner party where everyone got there and realized that they could not leave no matter what they did. That's not exactly what happens here, but you get the idea. There are similarities to a movie like Clue, where we, when, when everyone gets to where they're going, they all realize that maybe there's a reason that they are here that has nothing to do with the fact that they just paid a couple thousand dollars to have a meal. And then there's a the question of what do they all have in common and why might they all be here? There's even elements of a, of a Pixar movie like Ratatouille. This will be the second art house movie I've seen this year that has made sort of overt references to to a, to Ratatouille. So there's a lot to really like here, but I'm going to say this. This is one of my favorite movies of the year, and it's uh, it's for a couple of reasons. One of them is that every element of this movie, just like every element that is designed and placed on the plates or not placed on the plates in some cases – uh, in this film, when the when the dinners are arrive, when the when the the meals come out, this film has been similarly prepped and kind of prepared, and yet it is not. Bill, this isn't an art house. I, I say an art house, but this is not a lofty movie. This is really a movie that I think is very accessible to your average viewer. It has all the elements you'd expect in an art house movie, but it is sort of uh, lampooning those 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 elements, and so you get to you're carried along by this Anya Taylor Joy character who is is someone who we can kind of relate to, and the story is straightforward, and it doesn't it, while it does go some bizarre places, it never becomes uh, it never gets out there in an exceptionally weird way that's going to draw someone out of the movie. I can see some of my family members who normally go out for very straightforward sorts of thrillers really enjoying what this movie does and where it goes. And it's done superbly. The acting is exactly on point. Like I said, I think Leguizamo's great in the film. I think Janet McTeer's great. Ray Fiennes is giving one of the best performances I've seen him do in a long time. And a lot of it is uh, very, it, it's not an, it's not a showy performance, which I, I, I really like. I knew Taylor Joy is incredible. I think she's, she's good in everything she's done. Uh, but everything, and Nicholas Holt too, the, the way that this movie is orchestrated is it if it, it couldn't really uh i don't think it would flourish if many of these uh performances hit the wrong note or if many of the ways that the scenes were structured and the way that the scenes are executed this is vi- this is one of those things that could end up feeling very precious on one end or it could feel very much like sort of shooting fish in a barrel on another and it goes right down the middle and when i saw the trailers i thought anything from oh this is a this is going to be a folk horror movie where people are fed to a monster in the woods to a cannibal film and the truth of what the movie is 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 all very different than that and very refreshing so I don't want to say more, but you will be thrilled. You will laugh. You'll be on the edge of your seat at points. And you will be challenged, I think, with some of the ideas that come in the film. I've seen the movie once, but I loved it. I thought it was one of my favorite theater experiences. And I'm looking forward to seeing it again. So it's a big hit for me. I give this one a nine. Yeah, you've sold me. Uh, I, I have wanted to watch it again. Life gets in the way. I haven't had the chance. Every weekend between now and New Year's are booked. But I will somehow find my way to watch it. 
you know, it kind of reminds you there's elements of would you rather, there's elements of the freshman, there's elements of <laughs> all kinds of different, uh, uh, what's that one that we watched? Um, Krisha. Yeah. It yeah, sounds yeah. like there's um, a little bit less of Krisha, but yeah, uh, because, because this one sort of keeps it in the, uh, we, you know what? No, no, I take that back. There are elements of Krisha in this too. <laughs> So, you know what? And I've liked John Leguizamo since Carlito's Way, all the way back yeah. then. Fantastic actor. I've liked him since Mario Brothers. Of... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Die Hard 2, but I think Carlito's Way was his coming in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and I was really glad to hear Judith Light. I haven't heard that name in a long time. Yeah, it's really good. Um, it's... And I, I I don't know. She's probably, I think she's done some made-for-TV movies, Lifetime kind of stuff. But it, it's nice to see her back in a featured role again so i am totally in it ralph Fiennes is a fantastic actor uh, uh anna taylor joy you don't gotta sell me on her Th- this is right up my alley one that isn't a straightforward linear you know cookie cutter film elements of some as you said i don't think what you mean is it's not an art house film but it's a well put together film well, what i know what i'm you know, the let production me value. yeah let me let me put it this way a lot of times when people hear the word uh, art house they think uh that it's kind of um elevated people are using these elevated terminology or that it's a movie that your average person can't get into and the movie hasn't been developed at that level when you see the movie you'll know what i mean that this is accessible like a movie like clue is accessible it's not silly it's not as silly as clue but it's a movie that your average film viewer can walk into and enjoy but it's been made with that level of care and craft and storytelling uh and even the pacing there's something about the way everything is set up and developed that it never, it tries, it, it's walking this path. It wants to make, unlike this experience that is catered specifically to people with the, the max amount of money, the max amount of interest, this is exclusive. The filmmakers have tried to do the opposite of that and make a movie that's going to welcome everybody into it while we see the, you know, the table is set for things to happen to these characters that are here for an exclusive experience. Here's the other thing. The setting of this movie ends up happening basically in a circular room where all of these actors we've just talked about get to sit right across from one another. And they're all in that room together almost constantly. So that's what's great. You know, uh, the screen time, even when someone's not on screen, their presence is felt. So Every one of these actors I just mentioned gets to have an almost constant repartee with each other because they're all in a room. It's like put all these great people in one room and the camera stays in that room for most of the movie. You know, there are a couple diversions here or there and the tension starts to mount. This is this is very, very well done. I was I there's a lot of things I expected this movie to be and it was much more than what I had expected it to be. And something in me kind of hopes there's a few elements of the party. (laughs) <laughs> the, the peter sellers movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think you're starting you're starting to uh to, to 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 move away a little bit from what kind of movie this Veer is off. Yeah, yeah yeah no i i get it i get it it's, it's just one that i'm gonna want to watch and i know that in the next two weeks i'll, I'll get yeah. a hold of it and uh it'll be it'll more than likely make a list but i don't want to pre-jump anything you know but my only other question is I know it, a movie like this is tough to put into a box. What kind of category is this? A horror? Is this a non-horror? Like, I think I think that it is a. I think it could be. For me, it is a. Uh, 
I, I, I think a satirical horror to me it's a horror film it works as a horror film i think it could be seen as a satirical thriller it is a comedy so i'd say for me black comedy would be where you would uh, or dark comedy would be the safest box to put it in it's a dark dark comedy but i you know this i this will be on my most likely this will be on my best horror of the year list i think it it says there's enough horror in this film uh, to qualify as far as I'm concerned. But I would say if you're a horror fan going in this just to see full bore horror, that's not what this is. But my experience has been that this year, the movies I've been most interested in are hybrid films. They're not movies that are solely one thing. Now you'll probably, if, if my track record of this year goes down, you'll probably give this a six, but uh, <laughs> it's a nine for me. And uh, I am curious to see what you think about it. Yeah. I'm getting vibes of, Back when uh, what was it 2019 2020 Parasite, where kind of it was all over. You're, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't remember what you thought of that movie, but yes, this. I is, really liked um, it. I really liked it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're yeah. you're you're in the right ballpark with Parasite. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alrighty. So we're going from a highbrow horror to actually my next one is pretty good actually. Oh, sorry, did I give that away? Uh, 2022's film that I had heard a bit about. So a few people that I trust recommended it to me. I hadn't gotten around to it. I finally did. And that's this year's film, Sissy. An hour and 42, comedy, drama, horror. When the movie first came on, I really wasn't quite sure what camp it belonged into. But by the end, there was no doubt where camp the movie belonged into. So the synopsis is, teen best friend Cecilia and Emma, after a decade, run into each other. Cecilia is invited on Emma's bachelorette weekend where she gets stuck in a remote cabin with her high school bully with a taste for revenge. That's kind of like a perfect setup. Yeah. It's a, so, this is another one. You don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. No, no, no. I, I, I'm going to kind of tread lightly a little on this one. Uh, directed by, uh, co-directed by Hannah Barlow and Kane Sinis. Uh, it stars, it's a relatively unknown cast. At least it was to me. The main star is Aisha D, who was in the TV show Channel Zero. Other than that, the rest of the cast is Hannah Barlow, Emily DeMargariti, Daniel Monks. There's a few other minor characters here and there. It's an interesting film. Let's just put it that way. So this is a film that kind of you have to warm up to, and you're not quite sure what camp it is when it begins. But by the end, there is no doubt you know what camp it's in. It stars, uh, it is directed by Hannah Barlow and Kenny Kane. Sorry, let me start again. It's directed by Hannah Barlow and Kane Sens. And it stars Aisha D who is in the show channel zero. And then another few actors who are not big names, but they are making their way in the industry. Hannah Barlow, Emily de Margariti and Daniel Monks some minor other minor characters that come along the way, but this is essentially a three to four person play. And this could actually play it really nice on stage if they ever decided to uh, convert it to a play. So here's what happens. Two friends from their youth who had drifted apart, reconnect at a pharmacy. So Aisha D is in the pharmacy getting some products and she runs into her friend from her youth, Hannah Barlow. She's initially a little reticent to go up to see her, but Barlow kind of flags her down. 
they had been really best friends when they were like 12, 13. And there was an event that happened that kind of broke them apart. And Barlow wants to get back together. And so it turns out Barlow is getting married to her female partner and she wants her involved in the process. She takes her out to the drinking with the girls and the boys uh, for her party. And then they kind of go to her stagette. They call it a hen's night, whatever it is, whatever the terminology is. They're going up to a cabin to celebrate. So Dee is kind of a little uncomfortable because she's got some psychological issues that she's dealt with in the past. And she's fairly successful at it to the point where she's, a social blogger. She's on, I don't know, Instagram, YouTube. They don't really specify, but she's really big in self-help and self-motivation. And she's got quite a following, over 200,000 subscribers. And so she's kind of doing her own thing. She's built up her self-confidence after what's happened with her in the past. And when they get there with Barlow, they're kind of rehashing their relationship. It turns out something has happened with one of the members whose house they go to. Margariti. And I want to step around a little bit of that, but there was an event and Margariti has kept it in her after all these years. Okay. Sissy is not as she appears. And I'm going to leave it at that. Other than saying she has been bullied in the past. She has some psychological damage and she's overcome it. The house host is a former bully who still dislikes her and torments her. That's all I'm going to say about that. So she's coming into this situation. She sees somebody that's like, anybody here who's ever walked into a room like, oh crap, I never wanted to see that person again. And here I am in a social situation where I have to interact with them. That's kind of what D is into right there. And so for the first half an hour, 40 minutes, it's kind of a relationshipy movie, people reacquainting, and, you know, dealing with these awkward socialness and we're trying to get to know the characters. And then we kind of get into the heart of it. And I'm not going to give a lot of the detail of what happened in their past, other than to say some of these characters start dropping off. And again, I'm going to keep it vague because I want you to go in almost blind, only knowing that it does ramp up the horror. There is a body count. There are some fun and unique kills. There's a final girl mentality to this film, but I want you to discover how and what gets you there. There are questions that arise such as, is Sissy a hero? Is she an anti-hero? Or is she a villain? You're going to have to watch to figure that out. Are people's psychological states becoming unhinged? Or is that who they always are? It gets dark. It gets twisted. I love where it goes. There's lots of gore. There's lots of fun chases through forests. Uh, you know, anybody who's ever dealt with a friend who's really passive aggressive is really going to relate to this film. There's some good kills. I like the ending. I gave this an eight out of 10. I really like this film. What about you, Nathan? Without kind of touching upon some of the points I left off. Um, there's only one point I want to touch on that is not in any way a spoiler, um, which is that, and I, you, you, I think you might have mentioned it, but it is actually a pretty fundamental part of the movie, which is the the uh, social influencer element uh, that yes, that yes. plays in with sort of the social media and and sissy and what she does and 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 the identity that she's carved for herself 
in the wake of what happened to her when she was younger. And it's, it's a good link to the, what we watched uh, yes. or reviewed earlier bodies, bodies, bodies. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to make that, that kind of comparison that bodies, bodies, bodies is sort of like the entryway uh, where it kind of deals with all that stuff on the surface. And I think this movie is the one that uh, delves a little bit deeper and it, and definitely for me uh, is more of my type of horror film. I think that one, a lot of that is down to, the the that central performance uh that uh is so walks a walks a lot of different uh facets it, it takes a lot of different facets of a person the way we all are right and that's one of the things about this the the uh the the influencer culture is we present one sort of face to this public and we want to define our identity by it and that is not and then when people want to tear it down they have this one facet to attack us at. We sort of it's it's opening uh, a doorway to adoration. It's also opening a doorway to assault in a sense. And uh, some psyches can handle that, and some psyches cannot. And then when this is tied to deeper trauma and and deeper issues with relationships that have been fractured and strained for a long, long time, you create this sort of uh, toxic stew that's building at the center of this movie. But uh, I'm with you, Bill. I, I loved this movie. I give it an 8 out of 10 as well. Uh, it's another film that has a very good uh, chance of being on my end of the year list. And I think that's that's down a lot to the fact that it does it takes its time in developing its story. This is a story-driven, character-driven film. Uh, you are going to get some... But uh, again... Aisha D, who I was not familiar with walking into the film, uh, carries it. This movie I don't think would work without the committed performance that she gives. Hannah Barlow and Margariti and the rest are good too, but this is a film that has a, you know, I've seen several movies this year that they they hinge upon a central performance. If you miss the central performance, you're going to miss the movie. You know, you're, you're the movie's go, not going to hit the way it's supposed to hit. And I like that. I, I liked that performance. It's one of the most interesting characters that I saw in a horror film this year, uh, and I think that the the way it's directed and put together is interesting. I it did take a while. Like as I was watching it, I was on the fence about where I was going to fall with it ultimately. But I think it's one of those movies that kind of gathers momentum, and when we where we end up. Uh, and I don't like Bodies, now Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is sort of this movie that sort of, it, it kind of just puts the cherry on top and you're like, oh, there's the, you see the complete picture. This is a little different. It's, it's constantly headed in a certain direction. I wasn't quite sure where it was going to arrive, but when it does arrive, it hits pretty hard, I thought. Yeah, it, I, it really reminds me a bit of the one from last year, Host, where there's the Airbnb and they make the reviews and the movie. Kind oh, of the, perfect host, the perfect host, okay. the perfect host, um, the perfect host. Yes. Except I would say that film was a much more conventional thriller. And I think there's a lot more going on in this one. I think this is, this, this is a psychological drama that has a little more meat on the bones. I think the perfect host was a more conventional horror comedy. You know, I, I, there, there are comedic elements in this, but this is a, this is a darker film, I'd say. You know, I like The Perfect Toast, but I think that that one existed more on the surface, and this one has a few more layers to it. Would you think that's a fair yeah. assessment? Oh, no, it's fair. It j- just a, a one, it was it had the social media yes, element of true. it. And secondly, 
it was one where it kind of started one way and then it flips. Yes. Yeah. And and this one kind of goes that way. But yeah, anybody who hasn't seen Sissy and you're still scrambling for films to watch for your end of the year list, I would definitely give this one a look. And I don't give eight out of tens if you've listened to me at all very easily. And and so it's worth a watch. And so Nathan, you, you have I think I think you have one more that you want to get to. I uh, I'll go ahead and I'll give a quick review of. Another 2022 movie just came out and just saw it called Violent Night. And this is directed by Tommy Workola, stars David Harbour and John Leguizamo again in a film that deals with uh, Santa Claus fighting a group of uh, mercenaries who have uh, invaded a rich home on Christmas Eve for the purpose of stealing the money they believe is in the vault. And that basic premise, you're probably thinking, where exactly is that going? But if you've seen the trailers for this film that have been playing for quite a while now, it's a movie that I think is tricky because, you, uh, Bill, you've seen, have you seen the trailers? Uh, I have because when I was in the theater for Terrifier 2. Yeah, they yeah. So uh, this is a tricky thing because the, the trailer is that kind of high concept deal where you see the trailer and when it plays – in a sense, you have a mini movie experience, right? Like it tells a specific story. It hits most of the main beats and it, and the gist of the movie, the joke of the movie, if you will, is kind of put up front. And so you, the, 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 the trailer itself is a great experience, but then you know that the movie has to either live up to or not live up to. Uh, the, the movie now has to be at least as good and hopefully better than the trailer you just watched because uh, you know, minor spoilers if you don't know much about this movie, just just go and see it. But what happens is we see. I heard about this movie. It's called Violent Night. It is definitely an action, a, a bloody, gory action film. And I knew that going in that it was probably someone trying to make a movie for all those people that are like, Die Hard's a Christmas movie. Die Hard's a Christmas movie. Well, you know, it is or isn't whatever you think about that. But they wanted to make a Christmas movie that felt like Die Hard. And when you see the trailer, I initially thought everything I'd heard about the film was that David Harbour was going to be playing a Santa. And I thought maybe he's a mall Santa who's fed up and, you know, kind of ends up fighting back John McClane style against these mercenaries. But it's quite clear in the trailer that he is the Santa Claus, the immortal delivers toys to children in a sleigh driven by reindeer with a magical sack, Santa Claus, uh, who can magically vanish up chimneys and yet ends up in a situation where he is, uh, taking out mercenaries with uh with with skill and 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 uh what is it extreme prejudice if you will and harbor's sort of a perfect fit for this but there's a lot of questions in your head like santa why is santa killing people like this and why and and what are we watching uh a lot of this movie reminds me of the opening of uh you remember the movie scrooge bill uh, yep. And at the very beginning, they have a movie that they're playing on the network television. They're called uh, The Day the Reindeer Died. I think that's <laughs> Lee Marvin comes in to rescue Santa and there's just bullet spray and there's a shootout at the North Pole. And so you have these I think of these as the Bah Humbug movies, the movies that are made for the more cynical people that that uh, that want their Santas uh, murdering people and want their Santas being uh, asked. Is there elements of saying? I was going to say, is there elements of, say, the ref in this? So, yeah. Let's, so, the the basic premise I've set up is, is like I've mentioned, you've got people trapped in a, in, a, in a house. They're being held hostage. 
and you've got the mercenaries and then Santa is stopping by to drop off the gifts. And he's uh, a quick aside is that Santa, we see him at the beginning sitting in a London pub and he is fed up with the holidays. He's become jaded. He's become cynical of, about what people want and the whole purpose of the holiday and the work that he does and whether what he does even matters. So he's sort of drinking his way <laughs> across the sky. He says, I don't have to do much. The reindeers do most of the work. So Santa is sitting in a sleigh, vomiting over the side once in a while and is trying to keep himself as distanced from the holiday as he can while he carries out his work. But he ends up in a situation where he's stuck and he has an opportunity to possibly intervene. The other part of the story does involve all of those people that are there as the house guests. And you've got all of them under a sort of disapproving matriarch who is in a nice little twist played by Beverly D'Angelo. And uh, so she's coming from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation to this film. So there's the setup. The trailer showed a lot of violent deaths, a lot of funny one-liners. You know, it's time for some season's beatings and these guys are going to be Felice Navidad. Uh, minor spoiler, none of those, none of, not many of those lines, those two lines I mentioned that were hallmarks of the trailer are in the actual film. That disappointed me a little. But otherwise, what you've got is David Harbour fighting off these guys in a very excessively bloody action movie that if you had seen Tommy Warcola's Dead Snow and Dead Snow 2, you wouldn't think the movie based on the trailers would go to those heights, but it does. It's as bloody as those movies. And it has that level of gore, but it's not a horror film. So to your point, the reason I was kind of holding this back is Violent Night is essentially a movie that's been assembled from other parts of movies. There was a movie last year or the year before with uh, Mel Gibson called Fat Man that explored a disillusioned, disenchanted Santa that finds himself in a battle uh, of survival in a movie that's meant to be sort of a hard-edged, grittier action film. Uh, as it turns out, the two movies are very different in a lot of ways. But the ref is definitely a touchstone here, Bill. Uh, the characters in that house uh, are all estranged from one another in different ways. And so the movie does name check the ref. My issue is particularly with the, with this part of the film where we have Beverly Angelo is this matriarch who is sort of lording her, her wealth over all of her uh, children. And, and they're competing and vying for it and feel trapped by it. And it's wrecking their lives like little puppets. That drama is never as smart and as sort of withering as it was in the ref. These characters don't connect for me. There's a little girl, the, the daughter of, uh, of, of Beverly Angelo's son and then his wife who are estranged from each other. That daughter character is central to the story. It's she that communicates with Santa through a walkie-talkie that was given to her in a sort of a magical way. He recognizes that she's on the nice list and not the naughty list. And so he, uh, she is sort of the driving force that is making him kind of pull himself together and fight the good fight, uh, the fight, the good bloody fight. And she gets involved in the action too. And there's a lot of references to Home Alone. So Home Alone's another film. Uh, in fact, the little girl's just seen Home Alone. So it's fresh in her mind and it plays into how she interacts here. John Leguizamo is the head of those mercenaries. He's very good in the movie. And he and and what I like about the work that he and Harbor do is that he take these characters as sort of one note on the page and they give them some definition. That Leguizamo is absolutely the villain, but he's not played as sort of a, a dunce. He's not a guy that's just there to get kind of wrecked. And he's also a guy that has some backstory he's not there to we don't necessarily sympathize with him but he's given 
reasons for the way that he is, who he is, and why he's doing what he's doing. And those reasons tie in a little bit to Santa Claus's story. Santa Claus has given a little bit of backstory that honestly, one of the one of my um, uh, disappointments in the film is we have a moment where we're given a quick glimpse that I thought was going to sort of spiral into a full backstory that I think would have had a lot of dramatic weight to the movie. But we see Santa Claus's origin, where he came from. We don't see how he's become who he is. But I had a lot of questions about that origin. I think that they maybe threw that out there because they potentially have an entire movie in their hands with that. But I wanted more of it. There was just, I can definitely sense that some of that was cut because so much of it, I think, would add heft to this movie, which is otherwise kind of lightweight because once it gets going, it does take a little while to get going. We're with Harbor's character, who's very fun as this sort of Santa that's just, you know, his head is not in the game. He, he'll, he'll linger at the houses taking homemade cookies and uh, dipping them in expensive booze. You know, this is the kind of thing he's doing. And, but when the action ramps up, there's too much time spent in the middle section with that family who the characters aren't likable and we don't really enjoy spending time with them. And there's, and, and they don't, the movie starts to sort of, uh, you know, circle itself a little bit and, and, and repeat itself. And then we get to that centerpiece where it's just Harbor fighting the mercenaries and it just goes nuts. It just goes, it, it, it's, uh, almost firmly at this point into schlocky, uh, violent territory. You're just sit there disbelieving it. Uh, the weird part is they try to mix heartwarming moments. They try to have the heartwarming Christmas movie and the bloody gore fest at the exact same time. And, you know, it's like trying to mix Santa sleigh in with, uh, in with, in with like, uh, a Christmas story, right? So how well is that going to work? And I think that there's mixed results here. This doesn't quite reach Christmas classic for me. For, when you get Christmas movies, you have a couple different versions. You have disposable, right? Like same way you have dishes. It's disposable. You use it once. You got what you needed. You throw it away. At the far end is the fine china. You're going to bring it out every year. You sit it out there and it's there to admire. And then there's all those dishes in your in your kitchen that are are the uh, reusable, but we don't put them out for <laughs> for the prize guests, right? And I feel like, in the terms of Christmas movies, that Sant- that that Violent Night arrives at the reusable. Like, I I will watch this again. I'll probably watch it again next year. I'll probably watch it again this year if I get a chance to see it again. And it's a lot of fun, and I did enjoy it. But it is just missing a couple things to get it to the point where I, you know, it wasn't quite the movie I wanted it to be. And I think a lot of that is down to these competing tones. It's a lot, it's, it's a lot of fun to watch, but the story isn't quite put together uh, to the degree that I, that I wanted to be. And I think that all the pieces of that, that's kind of the frustrating part is you see Harbor is the one that makes this movie and elevates it beyond disposable. Um, where Cola's doing his thing and he's making kind of a schlock movie. I liked the dead snow movies. They're not movies I return to time and time again. They're fun in the moment. That's what this is. But uh, he and Leguizamo are creating interesting characters who I'd watch again in another movie, particularly Harbor's character. But the movie keeps sort of want to hold some back instead of just uh, trying to make a, a fully formed movie the first time out. I wanted to see the, we have the relationship between Harbor and the little girl, but there's that backstory. There's a moment when he references Mrs. Claus. Those things are left as question marks in our heads on purpose. But I think had they woven those into this fabric to show this man who's become disillusioned with life and it has, has to rise to the occasion, we see that in tons of action movies. It's handled very well here uh, in terms of the, what, what what he does with the character. 
But there's a lot of, I don't believe that the family togetherness stuff with this group of people in the mansion really works at all. They're just sort of filler there, and I could have done without them. And I think in some ways it it harms the movie because they just kind of pull it down a little bit. I love seeing Beverly D'Angelo, but their stuff is not as sharp as the ref. It's not even as sharp as the stuff in the Krampus movie. So I uh, those are small kind of, you know... Uh, issues I had because I wanted this had the makings it had the potential to be like a new Christmas classic as it is I think it's a really fun holiday movie that gore hounds are going to get a kick up kick out of and the people who see the trailer think oh this is gonna be like die hard you might not be ready for all of the all the blood and guts and vomit that show up and so what would you give it say uh 7.5 it's a fun movie I am going to pick this one up when it comes out I really enjoy it I will See, just like some of these more recent movies like Krampus and things like that, it's all there's there there's enough of of like the Santa sleigh in there, but there's enough of other sorts of movies, and I think there's a bit more substance to it than that. But there are just a couple moments. I think you probably agree with me where you see it and you think, I wish they had gone there. They opened the door and they didn't go all the way through it. And I think if it's an issue of screen time. I would have got, there are moments where the movie lags and it would have been, it would have been much more effective to to just take those moments and dispatch with them and then move on and focus on the stuff with Santa. Cause he's the character that we're most interested in it. I want to know what happens here. You know, was he this kind of person and he chose to be a different kind of person? Is he a blunt instrument that's being used by some higher power? What is, what is Santa's deal? (laughs) And they hint at just enough of that that you're intrigued uh, that when it switches to sort of the full blown, like action gore part, I'm enjoying it, but it's not, it doesn't have the momentum and the heft to it that I think it could have. That being said in a year where we got a Thor movie, this has the best hammer fight. (laughs) So it sounds like a movie where a lot of spaghetti was thrown at the wall and some of it stuck and some of it. A lot of it does. Most people are going to really enjoy the movie. I really enjoyed the movie. What I'm saying is this is one of those cases where it's it's so good at one level, you want it to be better. How many times have I said that? But that's not a slap on the movie that we got. I just, uh, in some ways, I think had they maybe even dialed down some of the high camp schlock parts of it, they might've had overall a better film. It could have been so much more. In other words, and a lot of that's in the harbor. He's doing such a good job with this character. He gives, I think, the thing is, you watch a movie like Santa Slay. Goldberg's fun to watch as Santa, but he's he's pitched at the exact same level as the movie, right? But Harbor is doing Harbor and Leguizamo are forming characters that they rise above everything else. Gotcha. All right, so a, a classic it might not be, but a fun movie it probably it's going to be it's going to be one that's going to get regular rotation. It may eventually find its way to sort of you know the same way movies like Elf and Krampus are you know they're rewatched at my house. This movie will probably find its way among them. I mean, I have not shown this one to my kids. It's just a little there's a little too much right now, but one day one day they'll see it. This will be a a, a team down Silent Night Deadly Night. <laughs> again like i say you're you're this is not a horror film though and let me re- re- i don't think i was that clear okay. on that the gore is absolutely the level of like you know there's moments when it gets almost like they, it's not as well staged that's why i will say so it's 
there are moments when had this movie gone full bore, like all the way to a dead alive or all the way to like an evil dead Two, where the gore becomes nearly art, right? It would it then, then it, I would probably like it even better, but the gore is there and it is the gore you'd see in a horror film, but this is not a horror film. It's all, all the gore is related to Santa dispatching for the mercenaries. It's a horror movie for everybody else. It's like, uh, you know, think back to that Rambo movie that Stallone did in like 2006. Was that John Rambo or something like that? Oh, where he's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. almost like the concept is imagine if this like 80s superhero or 80s like action hero was a slasher. You know, it's like watching Rambo, uh, you know, for all those people when we how many times have we sat and talked about and to some degree defended Halloween ends and all the people that have cried about, well, where was uh, Michael Myers bloody massacre? Well, guess what? They gave it to Santa Claus in this movie. <laughs> Because he's literally tearing through people the same way that Michael Myers tore through people in Halloween Kills. I'm not even kidding. It's that level of brutality. All right, people. So I guess the the bottom line is you have to watch and figure out where on the scale you like it and where you place it in terms of the pantheon of Christmas films. But it's a a solid addition in that regard. Uh, It's one that I hope they, if they make a sequel, I hope that they take uh, some of the criticisms to heart and and kind of fine-tune it. Gotcha. Alrighty, so to finish up the episode, I'm going to go to another Christmas holiday horror film. I guess I, could, I can't say another. The other one wasn't. This one is. This is firmly in. You've probably been going, where is a Bill film? Where, where is, is a, a Bill, Bill film? film? <laughs> this, this is a Bill film. Oh, no. Alrighty. This is 2022's Nutcracker Massacre. Yep, that's a bill. I found it on Tubi. I I, I was trolling Tubi. I actually wasn't even planning on reviewing this. Are you trolling Tubi or is Tubi trolling you? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's kind of shooting its films right at me. (laughs) Again, I didn't plan on reviewing this. I was literally flipping around and I thought, while I'm here, I'll just take a couple notes. You never know if I might need them. And it turns out, yes, I'm going to need them. The uh, synopsis is, follows a novelist who visits her family for Christmas and finds a mysterious nutcracker doll, which soon becomes possessed and wreaks havoc. Like, that's pretty generic, but it's not that far off, to be honest with you. It's a fairly low-budgeted film. The poster is awesome, Okay. It's got the the face of this nutcracker with these long, sharp teeth drooling with blood, and the mustache is pointed up like it's menacing. The eyes are glowing red. It's got a, a commandant hat on, like he's like some military guy. It looks amazing. I would love to have this poster. In does it look like that in the movie? It, actually, it does. Oh, well, it, that's it, different. It's <laughs> actually fairly. It's actually fairly well represented. Not. It wasn't the highest of quality of makeup, but it, it's not that off. It's not a Roger Corman do the poster then create a film. So you say makeup. So I'll let you talk about the movie. But I'm curious: is, is is the is the Nutcracker a puppet or is it like a person, an actor? It's it's a person who's in the form of a Nutcracker toy. So the director is Rebecca Matthews. Nobody that I'd heard of. Obviously, does a lot of these low budgeted films. So, for example, one film she did is instead of Pet Cemetery, she did Pet Graveyard. Oh, no, Bill. 
<laughs> and 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 there's also another film that I've seen around. I haven't actually seen yet called Bats. It, that, that's that's just the uh, the the water we're uh, dipping our toes. So, so the, the, to be clear, then, though, is that the Bats from 1999? No, it's one from I think 2021. Oh gosh, okay. So it's 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 not Bats. It's not the. Not not the one that you might be knowing. No, not the Lou Diamond Phillips yeah. masterpiece from ninety nine. No, not the Lou oh, Diamond you're right, Phillips Bats, masterpiece. Pet Graveyard, The Candy Witch, yeah. Hatched, yeah. Bad yeah. Nun. It's, 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 she's Bad Nun. Maybe that's a nun exploitation. No, Cam Girls. That looks exploitation. Cam Girls looks like a, a ripoff of a of an exploitation film. It's probably not even. She on does have an Amity, Witches of Amityville. So there, you, there you go. Oh, anybody can put Amityville. Nobody uh, book. Oh, it's got or not, trademark not yet, that. The, so wow. So, but there is one name you will know, or if you're in the Eric uh, Roberts film watching cinephile, <laughs> Eric, a, he seems like he might be in this movie. I don't know. <laughs> no, the, the name is Patrick Bergen. All right, that's only Patrick, a stone's throw away from Eric Roberts. If we're being honest. But but Patrick Bergen, like Eric Roberts, was in films like Sleeping with the Enemy, Patriot Games, Robin Hood, yeah. and he does bring a certain presence. But not Prince he of Thieves, the other, the other Robin Hood. The other Robin he's Hood. He's also in a very fun, but, one of my favorite uh, sort of schlock movies is Highway to Hell. He played the devil, I think, in that film. Oh, was he? Yeah. Okay. But he does bring a certain persona to it that the other actors don't. Uh, for example, other actresses include Beatrice Fletcher, Julie, Julie Stevens, Andy Dixon, May Kelly, Stephen Staley. They didn't have anything other than these lower end films that are worth mentioning. So the movie opens with a delivery man killed by a man in a toy soldier outfit, a nutcracker. He, he comes like after hours to deliver this package and he gets killed. And so you're like, this could take me anywhere. Is this a slasher? Is this a demon possessed thing? Is is this a, a creature feature? We're not quite sure. So it skips to two days earlier, and a novel writer buys a toy nutcracker as a gift for her aunt. It's the holidays. She's going to go see her aunt, who has, she hasn't seen in a little bit, uh, but she's obviously very close with. She wants to get her a special gift. She goes to a toy shop uh, that is run by. Patrick Bergen, who makes these, you know, one-off toys, and it was a nutcracker, and he sells it to her, and all the delights happen after that. So uh, he knows her aunt. Bergen happens to know the aunt that it's going to, and he kind of gets a twinkle in his eye and goes, okay, hold on, let me go into the back and get it for you. And he sells it to her with a sly smile. Beatrice Fletcher is who he sells it to. So it's a creepy-looking killer, sharp teeth, menacing looking and so what happens is this nutcracker i'm not going to go through every you know nook and cranny of this script because you don't really need to i don't know that this uh, script has nooks and crannies bill well there's there is a, a certain evolution to the story let's just put it that way it starts at one question is it starts it as this little toy figure that they put on the mantle beside the tree and when it starts killing it's a full-size human so I, I was expecting like that. What's the full moon? Demonic toys. 
Yes, yeah, yeah, and right, yeah, they become like full size, and then all of a sudden, this nutcracker becomes you know six foot tall, two hundred pounds. Theoretically, it's cheaper How- to make that crap, that, you know, to make a a person in a suit than worry about having these little puppets run around. But I will say, the film ended up being better than I expected. Okay. You know, Nutcracker kills a woman who slept with her boyfriend. The Nutcracker seems to have a bit, I wouldn't say moral, but he's out to get people that deserve it or is perceived to have deserved he's it. He's following the 1980s uh, puritanical horror movie rules, is what you're saying. Yeah, that sort of thing. It's it's there. It's not really under anybody's spell. It doesn't really have a moral compass, but the people that had reasons to die died you know the nutcracker is a bit stiff looking because it's a guy walking around as a nutcracker but he keeps on killing he kill. put it this way this is one of the best kills i've seen in a long time and i've seen a lot of kills he kills one household member by crushing his nuts with a nutcracker so you actually see his scrotum squish so <laughs> hold on a minute i I don't even want, why am I asking about this? Why does this always happen? Like last year, someone talked about a movie where Santa was cutting off dongs. Um, But I'm going to ask it anyway. So this movie, the giant nutcracker crushes the testicles with another nutcracker. Well, this, uh, he doesn't kill him with everyone like that. He just did for, but, this but I mean, what we're, what we're talking about is the nutcracker is holding a smaller nutcracker. Yes. <laughs> it's the stupidest yes. thing ever. <laughs> You actually see like a jelly bean squish. But but just the <sighs> idea, he's a nutcracker. Can't he do it himself? I guess you don't want that in your mouth. But like, I just did <laughs> the idea, teeth, yeah. the, the level of creativity here is staggering. He, he's it, it, There's a man in the kitchen. He holds him against the counter. He goes below his jockey shorts. I, no, no, no. I don't, I don't need that. I just, I just need to know that there was a giant... <laughs> demonic full-sized man nutcracker holding another nutcracker and then using it for this purpose that's all i i just needed that yes. part okay yes. but but uh, no I, and now i don't mean a nutcracker in terms of another doll it was what you'd use to crush oh nuts. okay okay that's that's bad i had envisioned him holding a smaller miniaturized version of himself oh, sort of, no. and i'm like okay what the hell is going on but not 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 that that really makes a big i don't know that that would that really but um no, so you also you do get a a backstory on the Nutcracker. Now it was told by Patrick Berg, and he kind of gives the origin story of why it behaves the way it does. I didn't take all the notes because it was a, actually a long, convoluted story. But it, which is which I think, I think that was probably the right movie. call not to write story. all that down. But, but but it had to do with Russian soldiers, mice, the plague, and a jewel. And that's pretty much what I get out of it. <laughs> and a soul, a, a soul coming and living on, yeah. and the Nutcracker going on a spree in the house. Actually, I said the the acting of Fletcher and her former boyfriend Dixon is very questionable. It's a large demonic toy or or puppet master puppet. That's essentially what it is. But the practical effects are decent. It's fun. It's got a good sensibility to it in terms of just watch it and forget your brain and just kind of see what happens. Forget your brain. The ending, <laughs> it, 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 the ending is weak, but it does allow for a sequel. So I gave it a six out of ten. Six out of ten. <laughs> Bill, really? 
Well, you could probably, honestly, maybe I was feeling happy the night. It's more realistically a five, but it's better than a four. Sounds like a three. Um, but okay, I'll give it a chance. I'll, I'll see, a but chance. this is these are my. I, I don't. I don't think you'll be. I don't even know if you'd want to show John. I'm not showing. No, no. I, I'm not sure. I want to show Nathan. <laughs> to be perfectly honest. <laughs> but I know there is a certain crowd listening. I was gonna say, is this really stuff? like a? I think we need this designation of like, you know, you've got your recommend, your avoid, and you need your one for your to be denizens, the people that. Um, that only watch uh, that watch this stuff, you know, middle of the night. Um, is it um, is it Jermaine over on Land of the Creeps? Who, when he posts things, he always says, "Brought to you by Insomnia Theater." Is this one of those like <laughs> I can't sleep? It's one in the morning, and maybe this will do the trick. Or you want one on, but you really don't want to follow every moment of yeah. the plot. Well, I'm looking. I was looking at the reviews. I mean, I mean, by IMDb standards, it gets a 4.3, which isn't bad. Well, I was looking at the reviews on Letterboxd, and someone, it's ironic because I think this was your movie viewing the next night. It says, um, literally double the killing tree. <laughs> a single review says... <laughs> And but but then the review gives it two out of five stars and says literally double the killing tree. which is about a four. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, a, a realistic movie watcher will probably give it a three to four. Yeah, I that yeah that's I, I just kind of like I I just I, I just like that cheesiness. I got you, and I'm in the mood for that kind of stuff sometimes too. So I mean, I don't know that I'm in the mood for this, uh, but it's, it's it's kind of it's kind of like the time we watched Rats. Yeah, although that had at least the Italian gore going for it, and it also had the '80s fashions going for it. So, like, yeah, but this has a cooler, a cooler poster. It does. But are we reviewing the poster? Or are we reviewing the movie? <laughs> You're just gonna have to watch to figure it out. Okay. Well, there you go. There you have it, folks. The Nutcracker Massacre. The Nutcracker Massacre. There are no alternate titles. You can find it just with Nutcracker Massacre. Given this movie a higher rating than Starfish. Yeah, Starfish was pretentious. This, this is pre not pretentious. Okay. This is right. not pretentious. Starfish wasn't pretentious. <laughs> I did I didn't have to try to figure out what the characters' motivations were in Nutcracker Massacre. Oh, well, apparently you didn't because Patrick Bergen had a 15-minute dialogue about it that involved Russians <laughs> and mice. Okay. Yeah, yeah and, and uh, I, I, I overlook that. <laughs> well, you're very. I think the spirit, your your Christmas spirit of generosity is is uh, high for this one. I, were you high, high right for now? This one is what I wanted. No, know. I actually was not high for this. <laughs> I, I was tired. Uh, I was tired. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the the director of the movie gave me a couple bucks, probably the same amount he used to make the movie. Right. So this is. The... <laughs> And, no, he's, and he's we don't have any paid for if reviews looking, here, folks. Yeah, I was going to say if, if if you're listening, Miss Matthews, I would love this poster. <laughs> the poster, you are reviewing the poster, <laughs> Bill. <laughs> okay, do we have anything else? Uh, we got a we had quite a run. We had quite a run of movies going. Uh, <laughs> we have the the only thing I want to finish on on a more serious note is. I want to say uh, rest in peace, Mr. Bob McGrath from Sesame Street. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If if anybody here like myself is anywhere between the age of 35 and 50 watching Sesame Street with Bob McGrath, uh, great character 
I mean, he helped you uh, learn your ABCs and your one, two, threes, and he interacted. How to brush with the, your teeth with all that puppet. good stuff. Yeah. How, yeah. How to brush Sharing. your teeth, how to buy an apple at a no, store. No, but you're right. He was a staple of my childhood. And I think yeah. anybody who watched Sesame Street, you can't, he was, it was uh, like uh, over time, he, like some of those characters, they, the, the human characters of Sesame Street, they became as, as, uh, integral to sesame street as big bird and and snuffleupagus and you know well and and, and like there's mr hooper yes. and uh there was oh i forget the hispanic guy who was on the show as well there's like three or four of them that were always there a uh, maria was maria one of them there was a, a a few of them that were always on and he was one of them and he might be one of the last ones to uh still be alive so uh R.I.P. Bob McGrath, and I hope uh, the puppets in the sky do you well. Yes, yes, well said. Um, yeah, so that's that's our episode. I think the next time you'll we've got we've got a couple of other episodes uh, coming out of the various um, uh, illustrated fan and strange frequencies, and we do have the Christmas uh, uh, ghost stories for Christmas or, or horror stories for Christmas coming up, and. We've got one more, which will be um, our like Christmas episode where we last year we brought on Karen Wagner and uh, we also brought on Brian Scott and they joined us and we picked uh, each picked two Christmas movies and talked about it. it was a great time. It's also sort of the infamous episode where we reviewed feeders too. <laughs> seeing go back and listen to that. So we wanted to bring both of them back for the Christmas episode this year and we're going to discuss in addition to the christmas movies which you'll figure out which ones we picked and lord help us that there's not a nutcracker massacre among that bunch but uh <laughs> we are going to you know uh, delve into the breach once more with uh feeders three which is from what i understand has nothing to do with christmas but we figured last year we unleashed the demon and you reviewed feeders you made everybody review feeders over on a recent land of the creeps episode so we figure we might as well finish the the trilogy with feeders 3 which is really what a 2022 movie i believe so yeah it'll count towards my that's wild but last year we you found this rando movie from the 90s and the sequel came out this year <laughs> there you go so everything happens for everything a reason the stars are aligned that's right that's it well that's the, it. You, take, you take one trip in the car and you come across feeders you, you're not gonna stop watching them it's you're just not gonna. it's a trip i'm sure so uh yeah that's uh that's it for me and that's it for us here for this episode. Uh, you can always find us at Phantom Galaxy at podbean.com and anywhere you really have the uh, podcatchers and Apple uh, podcasts. I would say um, I'm going to put this call out. I'm going to be a little bit more uh, frequent with these calls over on the Facebook page, too. Please, if you are listening to this, uh, go to the and you haven't left a review please go to apple Podcasts and leave us a review again preferably a five-star review it gets us out there it also uh we're really trying to go for uh as many reviews as we get there honestly i'd like to get up to 400 reviews when we do that we would be able to uh it, it just gives us more more places where we can uh exposure and it allows us to submit the podcast for things like uh submission on rotten tomatoes and submit it to critics groups and things like that which will allow us to see more movies and allow us to provide more reviews and more content for you the listeners 
And so, yeah, please do that. And we will, uh, we'll work on doing some giveaways and things like that. But, and anyone who has left a review, will make sure they're entered in. I was going to say, Nathan has a box in his I living room. Boxes, his wife would love boxes, to see. So we need to get that going. But yes, please uh, leave us a review. And uh, that's what I have. Bill, how about you? No, other than people stay safe, enjoy the holidays, you know, give your loved ones a hug and kiss. Hope Santa's good to you. And hopefully you don't get involved in a nutcracker massacre. Yeah, yeah, don't. And, and head over on over to uh, Land of the Creeps, where Bill is uh, is on Land of the Creeps over there with uh, Dave Becker, who joins uh, me on the Illustrated Fan and also on Phantom Video with uh, Trey Whetstone, who's from Screaming Through the Ages, and Greg Morgan and Pearl Morgan are over there on Land of the Creeps as well. Um, lots of great podcasts to check out. Father and Son Watch Horror. And I was going to say, we do have a really interesting, fun, strange frequencies coming up in the next little while that we recorded not long ago. Yeah, yeah, we've got some good stuff. So uh, check it out. And until next time, this is the Phantom Galaxy signing out. Pam. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.